We were very apprehensive about it to begin with, both of us, I think, because um, although we've been very good friends over the years, not having actually had to have the hassles of working, uh, we were all a little bit not sure about it. But in fact, coming together again was really a great joy. <laughs> It's been wonderful watching them in the studio. They have this rapport and obviously total respect of each other. And it's lovely to hear them coming out with these little anecdotes about, oh, remember that track we did on Sergeant Pepper or the White Album? Remember when we did that, George? And George said, yeah. It's great to see all these ideas coming out again. And I mean, I'm sat there just listening to it all and picking up thousands of ideas. <laughs> I mean, he was the first record producer I ever worked with, with the Beatles. And, um, Working with him now, he's, uh, it's very easy for me because I know him so well, I, we've got so much in common, we, we know how we work. And it's like, uh, I, it's not very flattering to him, but I keep saying he's like an old shoe. Yeah. It's an old pair of shoes, you know, I just, I like them. I just put them on and there's no problem and in it. Doesn't hurt, <laughs> doesn't hurt a bit, you know. And that's the attraction of George. Plus, of course, he's a very, very good producer. He's one of the best in the world. I always found my, you know, I've made records too. I don't mean producing records, I've actually been in front. And I always felt that I wanted to have a producer because I don't think you can really see the wood to the trees if you're doing everything yourself. So I think as far as Paul's concerned, he, I think he does like production sometimes, but then like, like myself, he, he gets tired of doing the same thing over and over again, so he'd much rather do it another way. But he was always like that. He has changed. I mean, if you're actually going to look at it and see him then and see him now, there's vast changes, but it's only in the technology. We started off with like four track and now it's kind of 98 track of, uh, you know, so that, all that's changed. But his approach is really about the same. His style's the same. His bedside manner, as I call it, is the same. I relearned what a great talent he had. And um, we seemed to get on fine that we used to have complementary ideas that seemed to slot in nicely. And it's been very enjoyable, actually. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and willkommen to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and today we get to sink our molars into what is widely regarded and somewhat disputed as the great return to form for McCartney. Yes, this is our long overdue analysis of the songs of Tug of War, a.k.a. the album that I started working on in September of 2017 on my flight to Amsterdam. Even then, on that wonderfully low-altitude, smooth flight, I could feel that this was going to be a difficult one to chew through. Yes, indeed, hello, this is now the second part of our look at Tug of War. Tug of War! Yes, go and check out our part one if you haven't already, and this is the section of the show where I get to be much less factually concerned, and much more emotionally biased. For we finally get to review the actual content of the album. What is on the vinyl? What are the sounds that come out? How do they resonate? In total, we have 12 tracks for you here today, including Here Today, 
And just before we do that, I just want to start off this episode by thanking you, the fans, you, the listener out there right now. Yes, you. Obviously, we're not going to do the housekeeping at the start of this episode here in case you're just coming in straight from part one. But in this little intermission, let me just say thank you for listening to the show. I really hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're happy with this episode now because by fuck it has been gestating for some time. We've had our little ups and downs recently. I can only apologise for that. And considering how quickly it's taken me to write our Pipes of Peace content, it really is quite shameful. But yeah, Paul or Nothing is indeed back in business, folks. Please let me know if you've been enjoying our return, if you've been enjoying the content lately. Hit me up on Twitter and via email. I'd love to read out some more of your own Paul McCartney stories. And most importantly, keep on listening to Paul, the Big Mac himself. Especially Egypt Station. I really want to know your thoughts on that album. But yeah, on to an album not too dissimilar from Egypt Station. And I've heard a couple of other people make that comparison as well. Let's talk some Tug of War. There really is going to be a lot for me to cover today, though. It's a dense album. A very dense album. And McCartney actually throws quite a lot at you. It's such a varied album that, at this point, I think much of its longevity can actually be put down to the fact that it almost becomes too easy to compartmentalise certain elements that you don't like about the album and still enjoy the rest of it as a whole product. Again, that's actually quite a modern McCartney ideal. He really hadn't been doing stuff like that up until this point. Which, you know, as a content creator and someone going through this story, it is cool to see, even at this middle stage in the Macca narrative, that there are still many firsts to be had all over the place. Yes, this is indeed the start of the modern Macca album. The modern Macca album being an album where Paul will literally just write for himself, chuck anything and everything on, including the kitchen sink and the baby with the bathwater, and see what comes out on the other end. Though this album was never meant to be like that, the concept, at least in its modern setting, is much more relegated to a low-selling, more artistic, more-for-the-fans type album. Tug of War, whether it likes to admit it or whether it knew it at the time, is the star of this modern type of McCartney album. He'd been in Wings for such a long time, and this is what came out on the other side. Other parts of the longevity for this album could also be put down to the fact that Up until very, very, very recently, this was the last Paul McCartney album to achieve a number one spot in the album charts. Now, with said release of Egypt Station in 2018, that record has been broken. And now, maybe with that mythic title belonging to a much more contemporary album, we can now take a bit more of an objective look at Tug of War. For the benefit of anyone listening now who hasn't downloaded and listened to absolutely everything we've released up until this point, and if you haven't, fuck you, go back and download them now. Um, There was actually a bit of a notorious build-up as to what my eventual opinions on this album would be. Not not that I'm notorious outside of a couple of hundred people or anything, but when this show started, the actual gimmick slash concept was that I was not a completist Paul McCartney fan. I had explicitly not heard the entirety of his collection, unlike my last podcast, Down in the Hole, where I had heard the entirety of Tom Waits. This whole new Paul or Nothing thing was meant to be a journey both through Macca's career for you, the listener, as well as a journey through a new fan's eyes, a new fan's interpretation. And whilst that still is the case, you know, there are many Macca albums that I have little to absolutely no knowledge of at all, and I cannot wait to cover them with fresh eyes, when I first heard Tug of War, it was definitely much more in my Paul McCartney infancy and without context. Now, 
my Maka perspective is much broader. As I mentioned before, we've passed Wings, we've done McCartney 2, an album that I know inside and out. And because of this episode's lengthy gestation period, I'm also more than familiar with Pipes of Peace and working my way into Press to Play. So, with the past and the future of this album more solidly set, I really quote-unquote get what Macca was going for here, and I feel like that I can interpret the material much more objectively. So yeah, the prestige is gone and my own kind of reactionary biases are gone. But that still doesn't mean I don't have a bone to pick with Tug of War. Admittedly, all that hype and praise and all that build-up, all the pressure from other writers and critics, and, you know, aside from the fact that I felt that the album was all over the place when I first heard it and kind of lacking in some decent rock tunes, none of that was relevant at all. It was nothing compared to my secret gripe about this album that I was going to have to deal with at some point. And that is the fact that the album just wasn't a continuation of the sounds and themes and ideas that I so strongly resonated with in McCartney 2. Why didn't he develop it more? Just 30 seconds into the opening of the bloody track of Tug of War, and it's clear to see that it isn't going to be a sequel to McCartney 2 that people, and by people I mean me, wanted. Nope, gone are the days of Macca and his excessive techno-curiosity, He'd kind of vented that valve, he'd released that pressure as it were, and now instead we are very much slipping back into the habit of writing sweetly generic saccharine love songs, pop songs and rockers. Not that there's anything particularly wrong with all of that, as I've said, this is the dawning of the all-variety hour Macca album, but if I was a fan of this sound, this McCartney 2 rhythm, then I would have had to have waited another 28 years before Macca would seriously start working on those soundscapes again. And even then, with the release of the first Fireman album in 08, McCartney's identity was kept a bloody secret. Again, another element of this episode's lengthy production is that it's given me a chance to adjust myself accordingly as to how McCartney works and what my expectations should be. Whilst a huge McCartney 2 fan like myself may have been hoping for another album of techno psycho synthy beats, what was I thinking? This is Paul McCartney. You know, how could I ever have expected him to do the same thing twice in a row? I must have been simply mad. This ever shape-shifting, ever-evolving artist was never going to deliver me the goods so long as he was the Paul McCartney that I love. It's a bit of a paradox, really. If Macca had just stayed in McCartney 2 territory, then potentially he would have ceased to be this ever-driven force and simply have just been a hairy Moby, and we would never have gotten things like Flaming Pie and Chaos and Creation in the backyard, even no Egypt Station. Most importantly though, if McCartney had just gone down that narrow niche, we would never have been able to sit down here today and review this collection of songs. Which leads me into the main part of the show, doesn't it? The bit you all paid or not paid to see. Let's crack on with the songs of Tug of War, shall we? Tug of War? The first song on our list, the first track we will have discussed in detail on this show for a long time indeed, is the song that was going to catapult McCartney headfirst into the 80s with gusto, with charm and enthusiasm, with the whole world behind him hand in hand. Things are looking bright, we are hopeful, we are positive. This is Tug of War. In years to come, they may discover what the air we breathe and the life we lead are 
starting things off, we have some exceptionally high expectations here. Not only is this song the first song that McCartney has released, but outside of McCartney 2, this is the first truly solo Macca content of any kind since Ram in 1971. No pressure, eh, Paul? And that's not a throwaway joke either. We've had some very iconic and definitive opening tracks on this show before, which means the standards, despite London Town, are very high indeed. These tracks should be a taster for what is about to come and to get you sufficiently excited for it. Does Tug of War achieve this? Um, the answer is... It, it, it's complicated. I remember the moment I sat down to give this album a chance. I was on the plane to Amsterdam and I was thinking, this album and my naturally occurring astute criticism will keep me busy rather than constantly thinking about the fact that I am flying and going to hurtle out of the sky at any moment. And you will remember, from what I'd previously heard and dabbled in, I was not initially looking forward to, to tackling either this song or the album. Um, so my so it's safe to say that my reaction to Tug of War, whilst not being overly ecstatic or anything at that time, may have been tempered by the fact that I was expecting something pretty terrible. And neither this song nor the album as a whole are anything close to being terrible at all. Let's get that out of the way right off the bat. But as we know from part one, when you are conflicted with the best post-Beatle Paul McCartney album, in quotation marks, there are certain things you might come to expect. Lyrics, for example, can tend to be a little incidental on this show. So when there is a song with interesting lyrics, I am drawn to it like a moth to a flaming pie. Lyrically, Tug of War is classic McCartney. But there is a rare honesty as McCartney expresses his true ethos and philosophy at the time, almost like a thesis statement. And whilst it's pure McCartney through and through, especially from the outset, it has a certain self-awareness as to how it should sound and then how it intentionally kind of subverts that. The song is trying to be the typically optimistically Macca number, but it's weighed down with all too real troubles of the world, which is in itself a pretty interesting twist on the formula and feels like a natural maturation of themes that he's expressed before. The song always refers to a world that he wished he could live in, a good world, a world that he could be proud of, and the overarching message that you get throughout is that we, sadly, do not live in a McCartney-friendly, sealed and stamped world. These themes link us back to another staple of the Macca Seal of Quality band on the run, as again we find McCartney in a world where he is not welcome or does not belong, uh, or more importantly, is not free. But this time he's an older, wiser, more worldly McCartney, and rather than simply trying to find his own freedom for, fr for freedom's sake, he is trying to move on to a bigger game and he has his eyes set on freedom for all people. Like, there has never been a more obvious case, at least up until this point in the McCartney story, of him laying out his manifesto this fucking blatantly. And there's no other way to describe it. This is McElhaney's cards on the table. Forget Wings and McCartney 2, he has been away for a while and, he's been, and so he's going to update his audience on where he is, what he feels and what he wants to accomplish. However, the song works in the way it does because, despite its grand ambitions, it still works on that personal one-to-one -one macro level, which so many McCartney songs can tend to skirt around, especially in the later period. It is a broad ballad for the masses. That also feels very personal to McCartney himself and to you, the listener. That's all thrown together in almost the perfect formula to concoct a winning McCartney album opener. And even if the execution and elements of overproduction aren't 100% successful, what Tug of War does do well, and take this as 
sincere analysis or cynical criticism, but what it does do is remind you of classic McCartney and George Martin compositions, aka their previous collaborations, aka the fucking Beatles. This song, Out and Out, is trying to get you to think of all those wonderfully warm, nostalgic, familiar, familial feelings that you would have inevitably felt when you first listened to the Beatles. Yes, Band on the Run felt Beatles-esque in terms of its quality, but this song, and further throughout the rest of the album, there is this definite attempt to recapture the spirit and energy of their Beatle days. Maybe it's a marketing ploy, maybe it's McCartney trying to pander to the crowd to gain some street cred after Wings, but more likely than not, it's just what naturally happens when you get Paul McCartney and George Martin and put them in a studio. This very effortlessly blended sense of production paired with an older Paul does feel very natural. The production for this song, whilst a little overblown and in your face by modern standards, does it does rile you up in that sense that you need to. And, and whilst I feel the title track of this album feels a little bit uh, cheesier and later McCartney than, say, the opening track of Pipes of Peace, it does feel very natural and everything feels like it's moving in the right place. Nothing feels forced. Whether it's cheesy or not, this is the exact sound that they wanted to achieve and you know they did, which only furthers the listener's susceptibility for falling back into those familiar, nostalgic 60s grooves. Musically, this song does somewhat suffer from the constraints of its obvious designation as the opening song and the resulting formatting that it must adhere to. This is not a casual listen by any means and unlike the title track of Band on the Run, this one makes little effort to be a piece of art that exists outside of the context of listening to the album in order. Which again is very unlike Pipes of Peace as the Pipes of Peace track again in my opinion, does exist and can be a suitable listen outside of the context of the wider album. But hey, don't take my opinion for it. Just look at the single sales. One went to number one, one got to number 53. I think you know it was this one that got to number 53. Next up, ugh, this was a bit that I was always going to have to bring up. The refrain in this song is just plain old goofy. I mean, we would, I mean, I know we have a theme to write around and all, but Paul, this is a brief that you imposed on yourself. You don't have to follow through with this if you don't want to, or if it sounds cheesy or naff. But no, instead it's clearly McCartney drumming the obvious depth of the bottom of the tug-of-war brainstorm barrel as we hear the refrain of pushing, pushing, and pulling. Wow, fuck me, Macca. You must have been up absolutely all night thinking of that, gem. Look, I've already hinted at this somewhat before, but the biggest problem with tug-of-war isn't even on this album. And yes, you know, we're going to be drowning in com in obvious comparisons between this album and Pipes of Peace. I mean, they're just begging to be judged against each other, aren't they? Both have opening title tracks. You know, they are twin albums with three words and syllables. They share a middle word of of as well. And both tracks act as opening mantras for this for the songs that lie ahead. And without going into too many spoilers for next episode... All I'll say is that Best Intro is probably one of the few medals that Pipes of Peace could conceivably, comfortably walk away with. Tug of War is a big and brash song. It is designed to get you absolutely excited for the album ahead, and in many ways it does do that, but not on its own. It relies too much on the album itself, and it relies too much on those Beatles horns, that Beatle brass, those Beatles strings that George Martin so, so mellifluously concocts. And whilst, you know, as you know, I am totally susceptible to a bit of McCartney cheese and a bit of McCartney conceit. But in this case, I just feel like there's 
too much working against the song for me to get too into it. That being said, when I put on Tug of War and listen to it the whole way through, this song does work as that palate cleanser that I need to get me ready for that album ahead. To get me into the Tug of War mood, the Tug of War mindset. And as you heard at the start of this episode, I am a little bit partial to the opening line of this song and the way Paul sings it. It's a tug of war. Tug of War may not be one of the worst Paul McCartney opening numbers ever, nor one of the best. Kind of sits in that comfortable middle ground. But being the title track of supposedly the best McCartney album since the breakup of the Beatles, I kind of did expect a little bit more. Take it away. The second song on McCartney's first proper foray into the 80s was actually the very first song that I had heard from Tug of War. Actually, it was one of the very first solo McCartney songs I had ever heard. And this was for the fact that it had a relatively popular music video on YouTube. The video is pretty spectacular, and I cannot wait to talk about it in a little bit more detail on our music video side series, probably episode 4, after we cover Back to the Egg. But after becoming very familiar with this track through the video, I did eventually buy the album. So, I guess, in the long game, the music video actually worked as a commercial vehicle. Normally this is the part now where I would say take it away, followed by the song's title, but I can't, for this song is literally titled, Take It Away. Take it away, wanna hear you play, till the lights go down. As with so many songs on Tug of War, my relationship with Take It Away is a little more complicated than I would initially like. The phrase guilty pleasure is somewhat of an inaccurate term to d describe how I feel about Take It Away because guilty pleasure implies that I would even get caught fucking listening to Take It Away in the first place. No, this is a pleasure that you take to the grave. If it were not for this podcast, there would be no force on heaven or earth that would ever compel me to publicly discuss Take It Away in any positive light. It is by far the dorkiest, most endearingly lame Paul McCartney song that we've had for a while on this show, especially on this album, and it is a horrendous portent for things to come in this 80s period. If you want to know how dweebish this song is, Steve Gadd even stated that the song was originally a song that was going to be given to Ringo Starr, but Paul ultimately kept it for himself. So that is the measure of material that we are working with here. This is a song that is apparently good enough for Ringo and Paul simultaneously, uh, though maybe neither. Like, there is no way you could approach a contemporary audience with this kind of song, this kind of sound, and hope to get away with it. I mean, most of Egypt Station is cooler when compared to Take It Away. And yet, and yet, whenever it crops up on shuffle, or whenever I pop it on the vinyl, I am, against my very own will, mind you, taken to my happy McCartney place, kicking and screaming. In all honesty, people, even way back when I was a McCartney novice, I could not help but feel that this was the type of song that could only have been released after the untimely death of John Lennon. See part one of this episode for more info on that, as this song just typifies everything that Lennon would detest about Paul McCartney's songwriting. I mean, we're going to get onto ballroom dancing and its placement on the track listing later, but Take It Away takes the cake 
for subjecting us to a barrage of the most saccharine, doe-eyed, middle-of-the-road, inoffensive blandness ever put to a Mac of vinyl. Though, we haven't gotten too pressed to play just yet. Okay, this might be somewhat uh, hyperbole, hyperbole, but the fact of the matter is that following on from something like McCartney 2, which was an album so full of ideas and life and innovation, and was an album that seemed to be pushing McCartney to his very limits, means that a return to that kind of bland, quote-unquote, granny music, um, not, not only is ultimately quite jarring, but somewhat feels like a step back. I know that at this point, the McCartney sound hasn't exactly been formulated yet, and, you know, people back in 1982, 1983, would not know that McCartney would basically be doing this kind of music for the rest of his career, right up the way till 2018. But aside from the obviously admirable production, and don't worry, I do have many, many more secret nice things to say about this song also, Take It Away is really testing my patience as a reviewer. This regression into a more primitive state of McCartney-ness is an issue that is, as we're going to see, going to plague his general output throughout this controversial 80s period. The opening is actually blended in from the first track's final vocal coda into this runaway electric piano section that we know as Take It Away. It's not a bad transition by any stretch, and I will always love any excuse to hear more George Martin playing electric piano, but the vocal shift, the ah, is a little distracting for me, as I'm really confused as to why this Pepper-esque seamlessness was only employed here and nowhere else on the rest of the album, besides a semi-link later. Note, this fade-in and fade-out isn't on the single version, so let it be known that I prefer the single version. Said runaway electric piano is, for me, the standout element of this song that consistently gets me excited, as you can just feel the, the force of the fingers mashing themselves with fury onto the keys. It's essentially uh, a catchier, more energetic style of Paul's granny music, which is something he uses multiple times across this album and will always appeal to a sucker like me. It's just the way it bleeds into existence and sweeps you off your feet in that way that you know you're in Paul's safe pair of hands, and that there are also hints of a few twists and turns along the way. What I also enjoy is that it is so clearly George Martin playing it, and it evokes that same spirit and pluck of harpsichord nostalgia uh, from In My Life, obviously, which Martin also played. This helps bolster the rose-tinted glasses method of viewing this album, as well as sublimely reinforcing audiences back in 1981 that this is a proper Beatles-esque Paul McCartney album. Again, drawing even more parallels with Egypt Station. Egypt Station being another album that is one big Beatles fan nostalgia wank-off. Like, it really shouldn't matter if George Martin is playing on the song or not, but it just adds that Beatle Martin stamp of approval to the whole project and lends it some much needed legitimacy and fan service. Even as the oldest of the McCartney Avengers, Martin has some of the nimblest fingers in the business, and even a contrarian millennial like myself am rather helpless to the obvious charms of such a move, especially when he's in the video also. But yeah, enough about the electric piano, we've spoken about that for like two minutes. Like, reviewing this whole song is kind of weird, because, like I say, there aren't many conventional things that I could say would sound like they are positives, as the enjoyment of most of the song is almost 
solely derived from a post-millennial sense of sarcastic, acerbic, disrespectful, postmodern irony. Simply put, I like it for the reason that it's a bit rubbish and a bit indulgent McCartney, but that's not to say that I wholly dislike it on conventional terms either. I sing along to the chorus, I bop along to the beat on my bike, and I'm sure I've been caught whistling or singing it to myself on many occasions at work. As, for all of its f glaring flaws in my eyes, it does still have a vein, a certain tapping into that pure, sing-alongable, classic McCartney sound. I really can't quite describe it, but I can just feel something so inherently McCartney in this song. You know he thought that this was going to be the big hit of the album, and that shows, so possibly it's all of that energy and excitement that was coming in from McCartney's end that I'm feeding off. Oh gosh, this is just getting so complicated now. Do I like it or not? Oh, I really don't know. The one thing that holds this song back, for me at least, is not the exceedingly bland arrangements, nor is it the song's almost complete lack of pure McCartney melody, but instead, it's simply that the lyrics McCartney chose to accompany the song. Now, I can hear some of you asking me, Sam, if you hate the lyrics and the rhyming scheme of this song so much, then why didn't you include it on your top 20 cheesiest Paul McCartney rhyming couplets? Well, you pedantic prickholes out there, the reason is, A, I didn't want to spoil the content of this episode, and B, I couldn't bring myself to include an entire fucking song on a list that was designed for singular bad lines of lyricism. Seriously, that's how freaking bad this song is, lyrically speaking. I mean, the lyrics all over the shop do not rest well with me at all. Even on that kind of cheesy level, like I kind of have to look past it. I mean, never in my life have I heard a McCartney track that was so overtly and shamelessly uh, a slave to clunky, ill-fitting, constrictive rhyming schemes. And no, this isn't hyperbole or exaggeration. This is the truth, ladies and gents, and intersexuals, because you only need to look at the last word of every sentence of this song before you start to see a predictably boring set, a, you know, just a pattern that streams going through the motions of songwriting. And if you don't believe me, let's take a look-see. Away, play, down. Away, stay, around. Away, play, down. Away, stay, around. Lonely driver, road, go. Soul survivor, load radio. Ugh. Okay, that may, to many of you listening now, seemed like a fairly innocuous series of rhyming couplets, but you have no idea the potential this song has to irk me to the point where it genuinely takes me out of the song, and I have to just scoff under my breath at the apparent laziness of one of songwriting history's greatest songwriters. This is supposed to be a return to form, Paul. What doesn't help, and what compounds these issues also, is that the song is also a good minute, minute and a half too long, which, as we all know by now on this show, is a staple of McCartney, and it's just not something that we can remove that many marks for. But, my gosh, I, I do feel the length of this one. So, I know that when I started the review for this song, I kind of implied that I would be spending more of the, my time discussing why I secretly liked it, despite all of its foibles, but unfortunately, as I've been talking about it now, I, I just can't bring myself to call it a good song. Like, I do like it, I will admit to you now, with my hand twisted behind my back, that I do like this song, but I will say, it isn't very good. Like, objectively, it isn't very good. 
And if you are one of these people that actually enjoys the song without this annoying post-millennial irony, then please get in contact with us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com and tell me why, in no simple terms, why this song is good. But you also have to remember, you guys know me also, I, I am a sucker for the most indulgent of McCartney tracks and some of the corniest stuff that McCartney can throw at me. So, it really is rather odd that this song broke me. It really broke me with just how predictable and shockingly beige it was. Someone who cares? Coming hot in third place, we have what may be the most interesting experiment in guitar sounds of the world that McCartney has poked around with since San Ferry Ann, all the way back on Wings at the Speed of Sound. Not that I'm a person who cares, but this is a song called Somebody Who Cares. As I've mentioned on other podcasts, whether it be So Glad to See You Here, Don't Let Him Bring You Down, or You Gave Me The Answer, there normally seems to be, both through my own self-confessed poor listening habits and through my seemingly biased shuffle feature, a single retrospectively killer track always seems to slip through my grasp in each review for an album. And this was the track that managed to largely stay under my radar. This was probably because the last few generic McCartney acoustic-y numbers have been a bit without substance, shall we say. So I kind of brushed it off in search of more dynamic tracks like What's That You're Doing or Ballroom Dancing. But ever like the waves crashing against the tide, I increasingly exposed myself, not literally of course, to this song. And eventually I came to the conclusion that it was not simply another throwaway McCartney acoustic ditty, but a wonderfully, fully formed, well-executed ballad. And I'm not talking about the generic quote-unquote Macca ballad, full of fluff and tut, but an actual ballad with a soul that truly elevates it above the mediocre mire that these tracks tend to get stuck in. We will talk about this again when we come to Here Today and Wanderlust, but the height of this album are so convincing when arguing that this was the McCartney return to form. When you lay out those three songs, you can see why people were lauding this album so much. For me, this is where the album really starts to kick into gear after some somewhat simultaneously rocky and overly safe opening couple of numbers, and now everything's falling happily into place. As opposed to the generic Macca indulgence of the last two songs that can only really be enjoyed on a surface level, someone who cares eschews all of that and focuses much more on atmosphere, emotion and tone, which obviously results in a much better experience as those are the elements that are bolstered by a good producer and we have two of the best in the biz on this one. Here the tempo drops considerably and we are whisked off to this very mellow, very Mediterranean land where McCartney is best suited to serenade us. 
across the entire instrumentation and composition, there is a real sense of restraint and humility that firmly grounds it and lends it a healthy dose of credibility. Something that had sorely been lacking from many Maca tracks for quite some time now. And I'm not saying the rest of Tug of War is like this, but as far as I'm concerned, this track is certainly the definite reference point for quality. Like, the first two tracks were what they were, and they exist because it's a Paul McCartney album, but it's only really from this point that I consider the true quality of Tug of War has begun. So, like I said, this is essentially another McCartney acoustic number, and as with San Ferian before it, there is that certain Mediterranean influence that gives the song a merry skip in its step that belies the serious tone that the song is obviously going for. This serious tone not only shows that Paul is taking the album as a whole project a lot more seriously from this point onwards, as it you know wonderfully contrasts the trite throwawayness of Take It Away, but it's also a refreshingly different sound that we haven't heard really since he put out his first solo records. We're going to see this on many songs throughout Tug of War, but all of the tracks that really resonated with me and that really stuck with me after I finished that vinyl for the first time were the tracks that had something, a little flair, that made them sound a little bit un-McCartney-ish, and yet, you know, still had that innate pure Maccaism to its makeup. And for me, this is definitely the first example of one of those tracks. Subtlety is the key factor that makes this song so appealing for me. As we know, Macca can be known for his excesses, and when he's holding back, I always feel like it forces him to be a more creative for the better. For example, the bass line of this song is pretty fucking fantastic, but it would sound far too busy if he was louder in the mix, and the same goes with things like the clays, the drums, and the pan flutes that are all effortlessly mixed together. Like the best songs off Egypt Station, and all good McCartney soup albums, this track does feel like it could belong on any McCartney album, and I do mean that in a good way. The inclusion of the pan flutes, bass and vocal melody do do what most McCartney songs with a little distinct flair do, which is they kind of descend into generic Maccaisms, and you know, introducing those elements may rob the song somewhat of its Mediterranean influence, but again, this is just another example of the McCartney sound taking form in its infancy, you know, aka absorbing whilst dominating any new soundscapes into the fold. The hush-hushness that is all over this song is just so alluring for me. You know, you know, we've just had these two big, bold, brash, in-your-face McCartney numbers that have bored me, that I really haven't connected with, and now McCartney has decided to calm down, quiet down, and have a little biscuit and a cup of tea, I really, really have started to sit back and enjoy what he's going for. I, I really feel like I'm connecting with Tug of War now. The harmonies in general, uh, particularly during the chorus, are some of the best on the album, and they're a great, fantastic showcase for this new Paul Linder and Eric Stewart vocal arrangement team. The vocal melody itself is actually also pretty fire, especially when it goes to, to the part where Paul's going, Well, it's annoying not going to get very far, I know. And he goes, I know, but somebody cares. And funnily enough, Paul's son, that was his favourite part of this whole album. None of the great choruses or the catchy numbers, but it was that little bit that Paul's son really resonated with. And I do get that. It is a very classic McCartney chorus, even if it is one of the most subtle. Lyrically, the song also contains a certain amount of said subtlety, 
and contains a nice maturation of McCartney's themes and songwriting. Sorry to bring up Egypt Station again, but uh, for those of you who remember my review of Who Cares, you'll remember that one of the things that did actually bug me about that track was how Macca kind of wussed out at the last minute and made it a direct love song, kind of as a crutch, and made it about him talking to the listener in that classic Beatle fashion. But yeah, on here, on this song, on an album that, again, is admittedly a Beatles nostalgia wank-off album, instead we have Paul not singing about his care for someone, but that someone does care for you. It's a little bit like She Loves You, Paul is being the messenger, he's passing on the information. Like, he nearly strays back towards that trope that we see in Who Cares, but instead he just comes out with, Well, I know how you feel. So he's still connecting with, with us, but not in that overly done familiar McCartney way. Ultimately, I see it as a more mature movie and a quasi-love song because it kind of is an understanding of the limitation of him as a songwriter. You know, in, in, instead of trying to, you know, instead of trying to fill a hole in our lives, Paul is reminding us that we all have people in our lives that do care for us and that we should recognise that. Also, uh, before I forget, when it finally came for the acoustic uh, guitar solo, you cannot imagine how happy I was when it didn't just turn out to be notes replaying the vocal melody. And instead, we get another very reserved element that isn't the most playful or the most creative solo ever, but it's a solo that really takes another step back. It's not very showy, and despite not being showy, still displays McCartney's deft, innate understanding of songwriting, song production, and song craft, and the result is just this serene kiss on the cheek of a guitar solo. Right, there we are then. After a bit of a rocky and uncertain start fraught with peril, we have finally made port in a decent McCartney tune. Not sure if this is a fan favourite with you out there, as I haven't really been discussed in the media or online. If you do like this song, if you do like somebody who cares, or as I've seen it written countless times, someone who cares, please write into the show at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of this track and of Tug of War also. Let me know your Paul McCartney stories. But yeah, I can definitely see why people would start to see this album as the return to form if we were to start from this song, from track three. More than likely, its quiet tone means that this might be the track that you have forgotten too, but take it from me, go back and give this song a real chance because it is truly one of the unsung heroes of Tug of War. What's that you're doing? And picking up fourth place, as well as picking up the pace, we have the song that first typified everything that I was initially worried about when I was going to be exploring all things post-Wings McCartney. Now, the shoe is on the other foot, and it's easily one of my favourite post-McCartney 2 tracks, Full Stop. The perfect song for inquisitive folk everywhere, this is What's That You're Doing? Initially, I found this song to be very abrasive indeed, but this was during the time I really wasn't meeting Tug of War halfway at all, and that meant that the very discordant funk was not easily processed at that time, and it ended up sitting on the back burner. 
Then I had a bit of a Stevie Wonder revival period, and in doing so, summoned the courage to go back and give the song another go. Which was a very schizophrenic experience for me really, as I did not recognise the song that I had heard before. The song that I had heard then quickly rose to fame as one of my go-to most track-listable McCartney compositions and collaborations. Though that was also exacerbated and rushed up higher through the ranks due to one of the special tracks that featured on the phantasmagorical McCartney experiment that was the Twin Freaks project. And for those of you who don't know, the Twin Freaks album is basically just this really freaking cool McCartney remix album, and this is a song that was featured fantastically on it. Whilst I would be hard-pressed to pick a favourite between either of these two versions, I can say for a fact right now that it would be a microscopically close call, as the core sounds of this track, the core makeup that builds it, you know, no matter how you play them, manipulate them or remix them, they are solid to the core, as they were crafted by two of music's best songwriters working at their peak in a shockingly harmonious fashion. One of the main selling points of Tug of War in general was the notion of Paul getting to play with new and different artists, and boy oh boy does he start off strong on this album. Yes, I know Eric Stewart appeared on the first track and other various members have appeared on the other two tracks, but yeah, this is the real first household name, shall we say? Anyway, you, the listeners out there probably by now, know that I am an absolutely huge Stevie Wonder fan, and the gig in which I saw Stevie Wonder play will probably be the only gig that will ever rival the time that I actually saw Paul McCartney live. Yes, this is indeed how highly I regard Mr. Wonder, to the point whereby this is one of the first songs on the entire podcast where someone else besides Paul has actually started singing, and I don't miss McCartney at all. Like, I am more than happy to just... Sit here and listen to Stevie absolutely nail it with his characteristically charismatic vocal performance. What I do respect is that with this song, aka the track that is ostensibly working more within the realms of Stevie's style, admittedly, Paul does indeed step back and give Stevie room to do his thing, which only makes for a stronger composition, as a bit of indulgence in someone else's style is one of the many ways that keeps the album fresh and interesting. This song makes for one hell of a cameo, and Stevie brings something that Paul really never has before, which is a bit of grandiosity and credibility in the form of someone who's not part of the Beatles circle. Like, probably not since the time of, like, working with Billy Preston has Paul had such an outside voice with such an outside fan base working on his records. The idea of inviting Stevie Wonder into the studio to help Paul bring out his A-game was clearly a shrewd one even if it wasn't consciously made that way. The simply glowing results are so present on the final product, as you can feel that Paul is putting everything into his drumming, his bass, and you know he's testing his vocals to their very limits. 
It all comes together with a very unique, exuberant energy that is very clearly lacking on many of Wing's records. And being able to hear Paul genuinely have a formidable rival in the studio, as well as have just so much fun making music, only goes to reinforce the theme of classic nostalgia Beatleness with the audience. Though, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have heard a song like this before. As we mentioned in part one, George Martin spoke about how originally Tug of War was meant to be, quote, one of the funkiest albums Paul had ever done up to that point. And whilst that never truly came to fruition across the whole album, there are echoes of what that funky Paul album could have been present everywhere in this track. Like, Christ, is this song funky? But not in the conventional sense at all. Like I've mentioned before, Paul absorbs and adapts styles, and what we get here is a classically weird Macca version of an 80s funk Stevie Wonder song. Only it really comes off for the better and much more effectively than I made that sound. This is funk in the most atypical and oddball sense. Like, the riff and the beat together almost sound like they're almost out of sync or something, or there are a few notes missing here or there. But once you start sinking into the track, you suddenly find yourself surrounded by this ferociously cool beat that you just can't escape from. Possibly the most important element of what I personally think makes What's That You're Doing even cooler is probably the reason that no one remembers it over Ebony and Ivory. And it's for the simple fact that this particular McCartney Wonder collaboration does not sound anything like how you would expect it to, or probably how it should. And isn't that just so fucking awesome? No prizes for guessing the following comparison, but when you put this song against Ebony and Ivory, the contrast between conventional and unconventional McCartney slash Wonder song, it's hard not to be overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the differences between them. There is no syrupy sweetness to be found here at all. And instead we have a delightfully unexpected mashup of jagged synth sounds, harsh keyboards, and trippy yet somehow very sly and soulful vocals. In fact, for me, it is this song, with all of those electronically oddball flares, that most accurately evokes the sounds that were played around with on McCartney 2. And that was, of course, never going to be a bad thing with me. And yet, oddly enough, it was Stevie himself who was in control of most, if not all, of the keys on this track. The fact that the rest of the sessions didn't really produce another song like this, except arguably moments in Dress Me Up Like a Rubber, does give What's That You're Doing an additional selling point outside of Stevie. But either way, this song is just so unique and different, and for that reason, I just cannot get enough of it. Another part of this track that I really like, and forgive me if this review is a little more than just me listing positives, but hey, that's how I feel about certain songs. There's this part where Stevie starts singing a counter melody that is the chorus of the Beatles classic She Loves You, which is just one of the most layered intertextual Beatles nostalgiagasms ever, as not only has Stevie covered a Beatles song before in We Can Work It Out, but also She Loves You was also referenced by the Beatles themselves in Revolution, as Lennon sung the exact same chorus there. Man, that was complicated yet satisfying. Just like the song, really. Let's quickly hear both versions now, starting with the Beatles 1 in All You Need Is Love, and then Stevie doing the same in this song. 
Not to end this particular part on a downer or anything, because as you can tell, I have the utmost admiration for this song and I will champion it forever. It's a classic from this album. It is one of the best tracks. It is a classic Paul McCartney song and easily one of his best compositions. Go and check it out if you haven't already. But during the sessions for What's That You're Doing, Eric Stewart recalled this rather tragic moment with Paul. He said, and I quote, He said, I've just realised that John's gone. John's gone. He's dead, and he's not coming back. And he looked completely dismayed, like shocked that something had just hit him. I think personally that Paul missed John's input, even when the songs were written by one or the other. You didn't have John saying, that's not good enough. And I think on a lot of tracks, Paul lacked that brutal honesty. That quote may seem to have come out of nowhere, folks, but it actually rather neatly, if somewhat tragically, leads us to the next song on our track listing. Here today, this is certainly an important one to say the least, and the way you can tell this is simply how often this song has been mentioned on this podcast prior to this actual episode. This may have just been an offhand comment in an episode, or a full-on inclusion in a bonus episode or one of our blog posts, etc. And that is simply because the song is a titan in McCartney's back catalogue, a staple of his live sets, and it is almost impossible to avoid it when talking about Paul in a wider sense. I've mentioned this song before in those previous episodes slash blogs, and I've mentioned it with such regularity that it really is a song that doesn't warrant and doesn't benefit from any jokey, witty quip to get you ready. Because, well, you know why. You know what this song is, and what this song is about. Get a tissue in hand. This is here today. And if I said I really knew you well, what would your answer be? If you were here today, Say that we were worlds apart If you were here today We spent a rather large portion of our last episode talking about the death of John Lennon, and rather like McCartney's own life, it looms ever larger over all of the content of this album, its production, release and legacy. But but never is this more overtly present than in here today, and this is for the simple reason that, in a rather astonishing turn of events, McCartney took the time to address Lennon's death directly on this album. As detailed in one of the previous articles I did for our blog, like the third ever one, actually, titled Dear John, the Paul's, the songs Paul wrote for Lennon, I spoke about how McCartney would regularly write to John directly in his songs, that he would appeal to John or slander him with equal measure, but he never really wrote about him or his relationships with him in the past, you know, kind of what the public already knew. Of course, the song itself is, in fact, a direct letter to John Lennon, the tragedy of the situation, of course, being magnified by the fact that this will be the final letter he will ever write to John, and the fact that John will never be able to read it. 
but it does say more about Paul and his relationship with John than may what first meet the eye. With here today, we have a proper, full-on peeling back of the Iron McCartney media curtain. We get to see McCartney throw himself into his writing here to, spoiler alert, create one of the best songs of his entire career. It sounds somewhat callous to make this comment, but on this show we have noticed a definitive correlation between the quality of McCartney's songwriting and any turmoil in his own life surrounding said writing periods. Break up the Beatles and you get Ram. Have a bit of... Have a couple of stinkers and lose two member of Wings? You get banned on the run. And I think we can draw a similar parallel for Tug of War in general. This period of uncertainty in Paul's career, a period of great... A period of great pressure and expectations. You know, he's just lost wings. He's just gotten out of prison, and now on the brink of, and now on the brink of a burgeoning solo career, his best friend, confidant, and collaborator is struck dead by some jerk of all jerks. This obviously shattered Paul's worldview and is widely considered by us and him to be one of the most painful things that had ever happened in his life. So, when it came time to write a song about it, it was easy to assume that not only would McCartney be taking the writing of this song very seriously indeed, but also that he would be throwing himself entirely into its, into its inception and final form. Obviously, I'm in no way saying that Lennon's death was worth here today, not even close. But what the song did do, and still does in many ways, is give a certain amount of closure to the tragedy. Now, maybe this only applies if you are a music fan, or if you are coming from the McCartney-esque perspective, but this song, with all of its overt, emotive, heartstring-pulling drama, does actually allow people to cry, to shed a tear for John, or for anyone else that they may have lost in their own lives. What I do like about this song, and I'm sure many people feel the exact same way, is that even though the song reaches such stark emotional heights, the overall production slash arrangements are satisfyingly tasteful and reserved. Like, could you imagine if Paul had come out with a typically overproduced, overly self-indulgent Macca number, or a rocker, or an anthem? The backlash would have been phenomenal. He had already made one major media gaffe with his infamous it's a drug comment, so it makes sense that he wouldn't be making any similar mistakes with his definitive for the ages statement on how he felt about John. The song is a very quiet one indeed, solemnly quiet, and the empty space in the song reflects the new emptiness in Paul's life and in our lives now that John is gone. Paul plays a very serene acoustic guitar lick that honestly sounds like something that I could have sworn he would have been working on for ages, but no, he just knuckles down and creates a very atmospheric tune. George Martin's Angelic Strings. George Martin's Angelic Strings, the most overtly nostalgically Beatles-esque strings on the album, not only bring a certain majesty to the recording, but they are also a blatant reminder that the age of the Beatles is now truly over. Most importantly though, the songwriting and the lyric, though most importantly, especially as someone who is talking about McCartney content non-stop, 
the lyrics and the songwriting in general are easily some of the best in his entire career. I mean, damn, Paul, you really got me with this one. I'm sure that this one has made many of you folks out there shed a tear or two, and that's totally fine. I mean, if you knew the story well, then you would have to have had a heart of stone not to well up over the words that McCartney speaks to John in this tune. As I mentioned before, the song is presented to us in the form of a direct letter from McCartney to Lennon from Beyond the Grave, and it's such an interesting format for this information to be presented in. Yes, this is because Lennon will never read it, but also because how, in an, in an odd hint of typical 50s machismo, mucho mucho posturing between both of them, Paul may only have been able to publicly come out and say the things that he's saying in this song if Lennon was no longer around to hear them. Just like how McCartney was always searching for a surrogate for Lennon throughout his entire career, we, the audience, are surrogates for John this time around, as it seems he's just bursting at the seams with pain, with rage, and with emotion. The only way he can... Meaning, the only way he can exercise any of it from his system is to put it into a song and sing it for us. Like, where do I begin, guys? I could examine this motherfucker... Like, where do I begin here, people? Like, I could, like, where do I even begin here, people? I could examine this motherfucker line by line. Actually, yeah, I think we will. Fuck it. It's more than worth it for this song. Well, if I said, I... Well, if I said, I really knew you well, what would your answer be? If you were here today, ooh, 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 here today. So, first of all, McCartney opens up with a question to John. So, first of all, McCartney opens up with a question to John, which I really like because it cuts out all of the bullshit and the formalities, which not only reinforces the familiarity between the two of them, but also shows what Paul's immediate focus and attention was pointing towards. He has not opened with anything about his feelings or how he feels, but instead he wants to know what John thinks. He wants to know how John sees him. He, he wants answers to things that he can never truly know the answers to now. It's a very vulnerable place to be in in a song because A, it confirms these suspicions that Paul was always seeking this guy's approval in one form or another, but also B, the implicated admittance that the very fact that he has to ask this question means he is unsure what the answer to such an important question such as do you think I know you well would actually be which is sad really as you would think that he would would have that security uh, emotionally but I guess that's just John the immediacy of the The immediacy of this intro, rather like the immediate way in which we lost John, throws you right into the mix of McCartney's headspace. What is he thinking, what he is thinking, and what he is feeling. Just, you know, he's just going from one thought to another, ping, 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 ping. His mind is going a thousand miles an hour. He just wants to ask all of, of these questions to John. And, and the fact that John won't be able to answer any of these questions is just... Such a soberingly sad realisation at just how, you know, futile anything after such a tragedy can be. 
Well, knowing you, you'd probably laugh and say that we were worlds apart. If you were here today, ooh, 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 here today. Again, more repetition of here today, and if you haven't guessed by now, it's getting more and more tragic and heart-wrenching every time he says it, making one of the greatest uses of repetition in his whole catalogue, really. Again, this is another one of those moments where Paul's mastery of the art form, the tragic inspirational motivator behind the song, as well as the public's own relationship with the two of them together, means that every time he says here today, it only just further highlights just how fucking John isn't here today. And one day, maybe when Paul is not here as well, I dread to think, knock on wood, the song is going to take on an even greater tragedy. Again, this verse just highlights the psychology of McCartney. Obviously, clearly John's perception of him was something that was very present in his mind uh, throughout his whole life, and especially during this recording as well. And just to throw in another snarky reply from John is either a nod to the fact that Paul really just was that insecure about John's feelings towards him, or maybe it's a little bit more subtle. Paul says, you'd probably laugh and say that we were worlds apart. So Paul is maybe somewhat implying that that's not what John actually thought or felt on the inside, which adds another tragic layer of depth to their relationship. But as for me, I still remember how it was before, and I'm holding back the tears no more. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I love you. Ooh, 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 ooh. This one is just going straight for the balls at this point, because how can you not start to tremble your lower lip when Paul, after all these years, after so much supposed rivalry and bickering behind the scenes, just cuts the crap, gets right to it, and tells John that he's no longer holding back the tears over losing him, and most importantly, that he loves this man. The best part about this... The best part about this particular use of the word love in the extensive history of Paul's use of the word is that it feels so damn understated. It just feels like, hey man, I love you, you know? Again, that moment could have just been very different in a bad way very, very quickly. Like, yeah, the song does come to a literal halt just for Paul to say that he loves John, but it's possibly the key moment where Paul uncharacteristically just lays his emotions bare on the table. What about the time we met? Well, I suppose that you could say that we were playing hard to get. Didn't understand a thing, but we could always sing. This verse is a reference to the now famous meeting of Paul and John when Paul went to see John's skiffle band play at St. Peter's Church in Walton, Liverpool, back when they were the Quarrymen. This reference immediately um, does two things. Firstly, in bringing the iconic introductory image to the forefront of this song, highlights just how young these boys were when they met and all the time that has passed since. They were just little boys back then. And, you know, for one of them to have that youth cut violently short is a horrifying byproduct of that. And I think Paul knew that he would be plucking at that particular heartstring in a kind of dark inverse of all the nostalgia masturbation that we've been experiencing on this album so far. Um, secondly, it bookends McCartney's entire experience with John. We, we know how it begins, we know how it ends, and aside from the tears, it, it does offer a certain cheery, rose-tinted wink to the audience, nod to the past, like, hey, at least we've still got all of these memories. They are still all there. That hasn't faded away, so don't panic about that. Also, the idea of Paul and John playing hard to get is just a fantastic image for me. It's a great use of language, and it does draw attention to the fact that this track is, again, another borderline love song, this time to John himself. And after all these years, I'm surprised Paul hasn't written ten love songs to this man. 
And I'm not making a joke when I say this. Paul has a penchant, a natural talent for slipping into these love song tropes. And whilst the subject might not be romantic love, Paul is powerless to not go into the channels of fraternal, brotherly love that, as a song, may use some of the conventions of a more romantic one. What about the night we cried? Because there wasn't any reason left to keep it all inside. Never understood a word, but you were always there with a smile. This is another oddly, specifically openly biographical reference that McCartney drops on us here, which already makes this song one of the most overtly all-access songs in McCartney's entire oeuvre, and this reference is one that is a little more obscure, especially back in the 1980s, let alone now. And this is a nod to the special time, possibly the only night that John let his guard down in front of McCartney. This was the night that, according to Beatle lore, they talked about the, the mutual death of their mothers and they both cried. They may have even been on, a, on holiday at some point, so they weren't even in Liverpool at home. So there was a certain distance and safety and secrecy they had with each other there. And if you know that it, this was the debut of this information being uh, given to the public, I, 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 I don't know, I can't find it in the literature anywhere if people already knew this stuff at this time, so I'm probably going to need help from an older listener out there. But if you know whether people knew that there was this famous The Night That Paul and John Cried uh, before Here Today came out, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. And if I say, I really loved you and was glad you came along... And you were here today, ooh, 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 for you were in my song, ooh, 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 here today. And the last verse, Paul really drives home this love for John. It's really tender. And by this point, you really should be along for the ride. You should be a blubbering. You should be a flubbering. I know I was the first few times I listened to it. And that was even before I knew the backstory. The fantastic wordsmanship in the last lyric is such a classic Macca-esque twist. It's the end whereby the whole song, he wishes that John, you know, he was here today, but then he points out that since that we are singing about him and that John is in one of Paul's songs, that he will be remembered here today and that he is being remembered here today whenever someone sings it. And I don't know, but there's something a little uneasy with me about that last line, almost like it's a cross between a laugh, ha-ha, I won, you are now in my song forever, John, and some sort of primitive, superstitious beetle belief that maybe John's soul is now trapped inside of this song forever because Paul has sung about it and maybe John cannot pass to the other side until McCartney himself dies as well. You never know. And that was basically all of the lyrics for here today. We've rarely ever done that on this show. Don't worry, we're not really going to do it for many of them at all. But again, this is a very important song. Like, he's still playing this track to this day. I saw him play it when I saw him back in December. And it made the room come to a standstill. Paul, like, came up on this big black plinth, like something out of 2001 A Space Odyssey. He did the same for his Blackbird performance. And in the way that I mocked Live and Let Die until I saw it live, you know, may maybe perhaps I found here today a little bit twee and a little bit me. But, you know, Paul proves me wrong once again when I see him live doing this song. And, oh, I was in bits. I really was. Just before I wrap things up, um, another thing I, I noticed about here today, and this is totally supposition, but I think Paul put this track at the end of side one very much as a, a nod or a bit of penance for the fact that Paul didn't let John... And I want you, she's so heavy, to end Abbey Road. So instead, he let, he let him end it with side one. And like there could be some imagery and some symbolism and some metaphor here, like 
John is the end of this side one of Paul, but he's not the end of Paul McCartney. So we flip over to side two. Do you see see what I mean there? Like, it's a literal passage. Like, once you flip this disc over, the Beatles are over, John is gone, and we are pressing forth with brand new Paul McCartney content. Even if Here Today was probably one of the last songs recorded for the sessions. In the end, with Here Today, Paul has made a -a one-of-a-kind song that only he ever could have had any hope of writing. And that's probably one of the most tragic elements of it as well. Um, The very existence of it is just surrounded in such pain that it's always going to be forever injected with a certain amount of audience reaction and emotion. Uh, Even if you don't like it, you know, you can't say you don't feel something or think about something when you hear it. It's that affecting. It's here today. It's, It's fucking great. Ballroom dancing! Leaping feet first onto side two, and we have a song that can be best described as the coolest uncool song ever made. But then again, that is also the description for a third of Paul's entire songbook. Anyway, put on your dancing shoes. This is ballroom dancing. has always been at home, sat right in front of the piano, banking out old classics. And the music hall tradition is one that goes right back through his family tree. Right from day one, I think Paul knew that this was always going to be one of those many self-indulgent genres that he was always going to enjoy playing. And it was always going to come out one way or another in any other music that he was going to make. You know, he did hold off a little bit at first... But then these direct homages to the star came out with You Gave Me The Answer, uh, Maxwell Silver Hammer and When I'm 64 with some semi-psychedelia affectations to them. But here with ballroom dancing, we get my favourite mode of McCartney's quote-unquote granny music. And this is something I went into, into detail in my top Paul McCartney granny songs article. And that is when he decides to add a bit of rock and roll bollocks to the proceedings, such as with Martha My Dear. Few things in this old world will put a smile on my face in the way that the opening flurry of piano notes from this song does. You know, boy oh boy did I ever underestimate how much this song was going to worm its way into my top solo Macca tracks. Those opening piano codas immediately rank amongst the best of McCartney's catchy piano licks like Lady Madonna, 1985, and again, Martha My Dear. Like, honestly, I cannot empathise with someone as a fellow human being if they do not love that da 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 And then there's that complimentary thuggish bass line that just trundles along thrumpy and pumpy. Just that dung-dung-dung-dung-dung-dung-dung. It's so simple for a McCartney bass riff, like, especially, you know, coming you know, off when we've been talking about things like Goodnight Tonight and Silly Love Songs, but even in its rawness, there's just such an energy to it. And the bass and the guitar together, there's just something about it that gives me such a rush. Whilst writing and rewriting the review for this song, I was struggling to point out what it is about the arrangement or the composition that I find just so enthralling. But upon closer inspection, I think what it is is that this song just panders to my inner Macca fanboy. 
Because basically, once you look past Eric Stewart's occasional ooh and ahs, the brass and Jack Brimer's beautifully haunting and, and oddly placed, oddly timed clarinet solo, all of the major instrumentation on this song is McCartney himself. The piano, the bass, the guitar, the drums, and according to the Wikipedia article, the quote-unquote percussion, all of it is him. And what it does, I think, for me, is give the song a certain McCartney 1 slash Ram slash McCartney 2 feel, whereby you do get this certain energy that you cannot get anywhere else that can only come from Macca doing his thing and playing all of the instruments in that kind of Prince fashion. Perhaps maybe it's because that this album is supposed to be about all of these musical cameos and getting different musicians and different instrumentalists in that I'm forced to kind of address that, you know, what I'm really paying for is a Paul McCartney album, and I do prefer the mode where Paul is doing everything himself. So, at the end of the day, what I'm saying is I love ballroom dancing because it's the least tug-of-war song on tug-of-war. However, what you can say is that this is like a McCartney 1 slash Ram slash McCartney 2 kind of song that has George Martin and all of EMI and Air Studios behind it. Ballroom Dancing started off life as one of the many songs that would be part of the initial post-back-to-the-egg rehearsal slash pre-recording sessions. And it was initially a very different beast compared to the silly powerhouse that we know and love today. Or at least, I love. The original tapes that one can hear online for free, thanks to our friend of the show, Mr. Jimmy McCulloch fan, reveal a much simpler, unconfident version of the track, featuring none of the thrilling bells or whistles that would appear on the final version. The pace was much slower, the vocals were decidedly weaker and unsure of themselves, and it had one of the lamest, obviously placeholder bass lines that McCartney could come up with on the spot. And the result of all this, when you throw in the general malaise and lack of enthusiasm for that project anyway, it just makes for a completely shocking product when compared to the one that we get on the album. Like, yes, I know I made you sit through this tripe in part one, but in order to make my point a little more clearer, we must once again hear the demo clip of Ballroom Dancing. Well, I used to smile when I was a pup, wailing down and out in a china cup with a recipe for a lovely day sticking out of my back pocket. It wasn't always such a pretty sight Cause we used to fight like cats Ooh, just makes you shudder, doesn't it? But this song goes back even further than Wings, as we know. Throughout the entirety of the song, there are some extremely obvious connotations to McCartney's childhood. Obviously, the song is a great allusion to the very music that Paul would have heard in the very dance halls that he and his father grew up in. But also in the sense that the lyrics focus almost solely on Paul recounting tales, or the singer recounting tales of when he was a kid or when he was a pup, and how ballroom dancing made a man out of him. Like, perhaps in the 80s when ballroom dancing wasn't so cool, and maybe Paul considers himself to be kind of a cool, influential figure, he's saying that, hey, you know, some things from the past might be a little bit lame and a little bit dull now, but back in the day, that is what was cool. That is what was happening with the youth at the time, and it's a fantastic time capsule of that. We consider the Beatles to be these influential rock and roll types with all the drugs and the sex and the scandal and stuff, but when they were growing up as kids, they were just going to dance halls and and they were being exposed to things like ballroom music and classical 
You know, the idea that these ballroom dancing halls made a man out of him with all the uh, connotations therein of hormones and dalliances might not be clear. But whether it was just, you know, these dance halls were just the places he happened to be at whilst he was growing up, or whether he did some literal growing up in them, he is straight up grateful for that experience. There's also a little hint of modern Paul in this song also. There's this inspired little use of some audio clip from a real-life ballroom dancing competition that he just slips into the mix. Let's just hear that quickly as well. And when you hear that, what it does is A, remind you just how cuckoo bananas McCartney actually is and how much fun he's having with this song. And B, it acts as a as part of the narrative as it literally announces slash moves you on to the next segment, which is the solo and the instrumental segment. Any attempt from Paul to add these little bits of silliness again, especially on such a nostalgic album, is always going to go down well with me and the fans. I think much of the overall excitement of this song is also down to the stark, uplifting contrast you get after finishing side one. Don't forget, this is the opening of side two of Tug of War, and that's very important. Not only as it is the first sound you hear when you flip the disc, but it is also the first of anything you hear after the untimely here today, which was such a final moment, you know? It, well, seemingly the end anyway. And whilst I've already alluded to several reasons for the placement of this song, even when I was just talking about Here Today just then, but the fact that Here Today ends side A and ballroom dancing begins side B, at least in my particular hypothesis, was entirely intentional and thematic. As we know, Here Today is Paul's soul-bearing ode to his late friend, and it stands proud as the album's anchor, its heart, and in many ways its soul also. So, for Paul to then play such an obviously anti-Lennon granny song directly after Here Today is no mere coincidence. We all knew John hated all of Paul's granny-type songs, Maxwell Silverhammer and Obladi Obladar in particular. And Paul knew this. And we know that Paul knew this. The reasoning for the placement of the song can vary from the completely innocent, whereby this song was only placed to act as a fun opener for side two, to the artistic in the sense that this was supposedly the very best and most appropriate song to continue the journey with the listener. And finally, the personal. And in my own warped view of the world, this is the one that holds the most water. The reason ballroom dancing is where it is is because Paul knows how inappropriate it is to have it there. And before you get your, your knickers in a twist, I'm in no way saying that Paul put this song there despite the memory of John. Quite the contrary. I think, if anything, I am quite convinced that Paul did so as a little jibe to John in a, a jokingly uh, mean-spirited way to annoy him in only the way that closest of friends do. You know, he's written this heartbreaking epitaph of John's life, and then he just goes and undercuts it brilliantly by sticking ballroom dancing right after it. Though, I can't take away the logic either, because when you are taken so low with Here Today, that bright piano lick at the start of ballroom dancing is all the more invigorating and exciting. You know, perhaps if Here Today were to end the album, which, you know, in many alternative universes it probably does, then I still think Ballroom Dancing was still open side two, but it would be all the more less of a bold transition. But yeah, the TLDR of that whole thing was just Paul put Ballroom Dancing after Here Today because he knew that out of all the songs, this would be the one that John would like the least. In theory, anyway. The version that we get on the album, on Tug of War, whilst being the superior recording, in, in my opinion, is actually the shorter version. Yes, spoiler alert, the version that McCartney unfortunately did two years later for the ill-fated Give My Regards to Broad Street actually features an extra verse. 
So I guess that you could say that that's the definitive version. But let's not get ahead of ourselves and spoiler alert for that episode when we get to it. But it's just not as good. It's simply not performed as well, sung as well, and most importantly, produced as well. Yeah, sorry Paul, surprise, surprise, you didn't do as well as George Master Martin. The version we get on Tug of War has such a cartoon pop to it, especially with the 2015 remaster re-release. Like, there's a real immediacy to this song and its production, and the rush you feel is really fucking tangible. Like, you are there from start to finish. The brass section comes in about halfway through in... And the brass section that comes into the song about halfway through in full force, you know, after that, after the non-McCartney clarinet solo, just gives the whole thing such a flair and a pop art feel to it. As abstract as it sounds, this song makes you hear the colours that it is expressing. This, the joy is that real. Though, the real reason why I prefer the album version is that Borum dancing, and I'm going to have to bring things down a little bit here, is in no need of another verse. Uh, the runtime for this song, even this original Superior album version, outstays its welcome by some measure, even for a McCartney song, even for a, an indulgent McCartney song, even for a fan of indulgent McCartney songs. Now, whilst I'm usually okay with McCartney's tendency to bleed a good lick dry, I do find myself getting a little tired around the two and a half minute mark, and there's a part of me that feels the whole excessively opulent faux Hollywood breakdown segment towards the end should probably just be cut entirely and be left on the give my regards to Broad Street version because that has a visual accompaniment to it. Yeah, it just doesn't work for me. It's one of the few points in a good McCartney song that I can actually remember being bored. And for that reason, ballroom dancing cannot be the true lost gem that I want it to be. The verses and chorus are just such a blast. And the end of it boasts such a surprisingly heavy arrangement and it's such an electric way to start side two after such a downer note. But then it just switches to this sludgy breakdown that brings the song to a halt. And not in a good way like in here today. And it just seems like a waste of everyone's time. I would love to give Ballroom Dancing the 10 out of 10, the coveted 10 out of 10. You know, it should be up there with things like No Words and Beware My Love and Goodnight Tonight or I Am Your Singer for these songs that I've just stumbled across on this podcast that are real uh, underrated masterpieces that everyone should be aware of. But unfortunately, that that breakdown at the end and its association with granny music means that it's probably just going to be unlost gem for other Paul McCartney fans rather than just the public. But fuck me, nothing is ever going to get me as excited as that dow 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 Perhaps this is just appealing too much to me on a personal level, but the combination of Paul being at his peak cool and peak uncool and making something truly unforgettable out of it might just be too irresistible for me. The pound is sinking. Paul McCartney, as we know, is a man of certain wealth and opulence, so it only makes sense that he would take some time away from counting his fat stacks of cash to tackle the subject itself of money. Let's see if he goes full Jordan Belfort or not. This is The Pound is Sinking.
This episode really has been a long time coming. And when I knew that it was actually going to get off the ground and I was actually finally going to talk about Tug of War, it was the pound is sinking that I was most looking forward to talking about and I knew it was going to be the segment that I was going to have the most fun writing. Because it's easily the most interesting and nourishing song on the entire slab of vinyl. You know the story, A Tale Old As Time. Yes, this started out as yet another one of those songs that, when I first heard the album, I wasn't a fan of at all. I thought it was silly, I thought the concept was forced and wedged in there crudely, and there was just nothing for me to grasp onto during those initial run-throughs. And I know why. It's because it's one of those Macca songs that needs to take root and grow, some would say like a fungus, for a few weeks, because it isn't one of those friendly Macca melodies that gives you the song on a silver platter, if you'll excuse the expression. No, if anything, this is a McCartney song that makes you work a little more for your meal, and rather shockingly, strays away from his usual tying things neatly up in a bow formula. Behind the scenes, the song itself was actually crafted from two separate songs, with the two separate parts being drawn from a demo, also titled The Pound Is Sinking, and a bassy love ballad called Hear Me Lover. These two songs are, in that brilliant McCartney way, wonderfully different from each other and highlight not only McCartney's more sparse, bare-bones charms, but also his most overtly technical and complex ones. Again, I'll be detailing this on a blog post that should be coming out very soon as well, where I detail all of the multi-part McCartney songs that were kind of stitched together. Links for that down below. First major point, even for this album, we have some frankly terrific McCartney-Martin production in this number. As we begin, the track gives us this natural sound of coins hitting the floor, which is very atmospheric and um, a rather interestingly abstract way to begin a song that is about collapsing currencies, almost like the coins of the world are being spilled off of a table and are being lost. Then, through this subtle phasing, it kind of becomes a, a xylophone or marimba that trails off and takes us down this little rabbit hole trip into the world of the song. And then the acoustic guitar is started to be mixed into the background. And then, boom, you have the title of the track sung by Paul, followed by this enrichingly gutsy electric guitar double twang that bow, 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 bow. And the introduction of this electric guitar into the composition is just what separates it from the average McCartney guitar ballad here. Because what we already had when this was originally being demoed was just an exclusively acoustic track and there's a shocking lack of life in it. Let's just hear that now. The ground is sinking The pesos falling The lira's reeling And feeling quite appalling I'm always hamstrung somewhat by the fact that I'm not an accomplished guitarist, you know. I still struggle with Bs and bar chords. That is my own cross to bear. But the electric guitar and McCartney's guitarmanship is something that I've always wanted to talk about in much greater detail and depth, but alas. But for me, this song is one of those shockingly awesome and cool bits of guitarmanship from Paul that always come right out of nowhere that kind of remind you who's the boss here. Like, when you come in to the bit just before, during and after Paul starts singing, the market's bottom has fallen right out and only the strong will survive it. There's this ridiculously thrilling and, again, out of nowhere, guitar spasm from Paul. Fuck it, let's hear that clip as well. Spider. 
From there on, as you hear, the song goes into this wickedly dirgy, blurred rock and roll sound that we really haven't heard from Paul before either. And his riffs and writing have normally been quite precise and aiming to be something technical, even if he didn't achieve that. But this feels much looser and, dare I say it, Lennon-esque. Then, as I said before, the song splits into another part, the uh, second part that was a part of a different song, being the aforementioned Hear Me Lover segment. And, uh, well, we really don't need to because life's too short, but we shall anyway. Let's hear that as well. And it's this jarring shift that totally works. And the way that Maka inserts this jarring shift into a totally different type of song, this slow, much more bouncy little digression, acts as a welcome break from all the chaos of the world going on around it and all, and all this financial turmoil. And it's Maka's only moment of respite in the song. And it's almost like he's, he's having to ig- ignore all of these real-world plights and just stick a little love song in there just to try and help make us forget, maybe, like real songs do. It is more for balancing the mood than for uh, thematic or lyrical reasons, but Paul just could not stick to that kind of tone for that length of time, clearly. Now, that was the second song that was inserted into this, but you would actually be confused that this song is actually three songs stitched together, more of a un- an Uncle Albert-type situation, as there is another brilliant shift into something completely different with the, well, I feel, my dear, that it's evidently clear section. Oh, okay, okay, one more time for posterity. Let's hear that clip as well. Well, I feel, my dear, that it's evidently clear that you can't see the trees for the forest. Your father was an extraordinary man. Gosh, sorry, it sounded like a jukebox today, folks. I'm sorry about that. Um, but just like the Hear Me Lover segment, this Well I Feel My Dear segment is another unexpectedly odd shift into a random waltz that acts as another standout moment of classically memorable McCartney hidden in one song. Like, I love picking out certain fleeting moments in certain songs, but this song is just full of them. And I get such a rush of dopamine whenever I hear all of them, but especially when I get to this bit. And I've always thought the lyrics of Your father was an extraordinary man, but you don't seem to have inherited many of his mannerisms is just so thought-provoking. Like, Paul is singing this on an album where he's singing about the death of John as well, and we we never had a song about his dad. So maybe since he's writing about John, and, and again, this is just massive hypothesis, this is just massive supposition, but perhaps Paul is accidentally cracking the window a little bit open there and letting us in where he wouldn't normally. I mean... Except for those two little breaks, the entire tone of the song is something very un-McCartney. We've moved from this very carefree, youthful world of ballroom dancing, and now instead we're in this very willingly adult world with an increasingly foreboding atmosphere that just coats the entire song in a thick layer of smog. At first glance, you'd think that this track was a serious rumination on the part of McCartney that deals with the worldwide monetary crisis, financial collapse, and the looming threat of poverty. And it kind of is, I suppose, there is this sense of dread where everything seems to be collapsing all around us, everything is going wrong, and very little appears to be done about it, or maybe little can be done about it. 
Normally, Paul would offer us some sort of counter to this, but despite his own financial wealth and security and familiarity with large sums of pounds in his pocket, Paul actually concedes and, for once, is kind of accepting the inevitable. You know, there is no happy ending. It's almost the kind of song that Lennon wouldn't be able to co-write with him because it's so downbeat. And the whole thing just goes on and on in a huge list of different currencies and countries, and it just shows this general powerlessness of the individual. Like, it's almost too much to comprehend. And McCartney feels that in the song too. Which is quite thematically shocking the first time you hear it, and makes for a wickedly unique and darkly interesting area of songwriting for McCartney to be working in. It's rather like with a little look whereby the really upbeat composition and arrangement of the song contrasts brilliantly with the depressingly grim and grey subject matter. It's not an in-your-face downer though, and instead there is this subtly subversive edge that belies the song's jaunty rhythm. Though it is through this notable lack of an upbeat McCartney solution to this malady that the true dour melancholy of this song's attitude towards money is revealed. Like, even if the pound is sinking, is it really going to affect Paul McCartney in the same way as the common man? Hello, Paul, some people don't even have two pounds to rub together, let alone worry about the devaluation of their stock profile overseas. It just seems a little too far removed from the everyday life of the working class hero to have the impact that he thinks it does. I know he's trying to be universal, uh, you know, I can see this as being some sort of attempt by Paul to deliver us something by way of Lennon's own working class hero, or say, the disastrous London town from Wing's album of the same name. And just like both of those songs, no matter how good the intentions, cynical, clinical assholes like me will always feel like they tend to fall flat on their faces after 10 seconds of background research of either of the writers. Don't get me wrong, people, I absolutely love this song, but conceptually, it leaves much to be desired. This next point I literally just wrote down before I sat down to start recording, but this whole song could just be the result of all of the post-wings legal and financial woes a la Denny Lane and Japan that could have been building up in McCartney for months and months and months, maybe not consciously, but the watching the world of money burn around him aspect to this song does hint at his you know, certain nihilistic financial look that could have been existing at that time. One of my favourite talking points about this song, though, is just how much of a fantastic time capsule and catalogue of contemporary currency from that time it is. I mean, half of the reason that McCartney can't perform this song live anymore is that most of the currencies listed would now have to be replaced with lyrics about the euro and other currencies. So here I thought it would just be fun to quickly go through these currencies that are found in the lyrics to The Pound Is Sinking. Okay, we have, of course, the pound is sinking, the pound being the British currency of choice, and was rather notably not given up in lieu of the euro coinage. Then we have the pesos falling, and the peso is Mexico's current currency. Then the lira's reeling, and the lira is both the former currency of Turkey and the Vatican City, but also the present currency for Turkey. Moving on to the mark is holding, with the mark, or the Deutschmark, as it is more famously known, being the currency of Germany, but as I found out today, it's also the present coinage of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Then there's the franc is fading, the franc, surprise, surprise, no prize is guessing here, was the currency of France before going to the euro, followed by the drachma's very weak, and the drachma was actually the only one that I'd never heard of, and that was the former currency of Greece. Onto the final verse, and there is the dollars moving, with the dollar dollar bill being the currency of the US, famously, yes, 
but also of 20 or so other countries, including the Australian dollar, the Canadian dollar, the Singaporean dollar, the Hong Kong dollar, and even the Bermuda dollar, which just sounds so fucking cool, it's unreal. Penultimately, we have the rubles rising, and the ruble is the ancient Russian slash Eastern European currency that is so old that only the British pound has been in circulation longer. And finally, we have a rather prophetic note from McCartney where he kind of predicts the modern financial climate when he sings, the yen is keeping up, which hardly seems surprising, the yen being the currency of China, aka the country that is now buying up half of the world. So yeah, the pound is sinking. I feel like I've been ripping on this song far more than I I ever intended to when I sat down to to make this episode because, believe it or not, this is one of my favourite songs on the entire album. This is exactly what McCartney should be making for this type of broad appeal, let's give someone everything kind of album. I love his songs that are stitched together and composed of multiple parts, and this is a fantastic example of that. He just throws so much at you. There is so much to digest and put together in your mind. And he still somehow blends all these different genres and styles, with a little help from George Martin, so effortlessly. And it's such a ride. And encased in all of that, you've got a very different subject for McCartney to tackle. Which, when all put together, just shows the manic creativity that was going on during these sessions. I love these Paul McCartney songs that just throw random stuff at you to see what sticks. Because it keeps you on your toes and you don't know what to expect next. And that's a very fun way to listen to music. Most of the time when McCartney is at his worst, it is when he's being predictable. And this song is anything but that. Wanderlust. On to another big ballad with Wanderlust here, and once again, we have stumbled across an absolutely titanic song within the fandom. This isn't a song that, as far as I'm aware, that Paul has ever actually played live, but my god, is this ever a song that is constantly ranked and rated highly on forums, in publications, and whispered amongst fans. It's easy to see why a song like this would be so popular though. It has a certain instant prestige McCartney quality to it, whereby it just has all of those distinct trimmings, bells and whistles to make you feel like you are listening to something borderline, dare I say it, Beatlesque. The song itself is more McCartney than Fab Four, but this is certainly one of those prime examples where you can point to George Martin's influence on this album having an extraordinary impact in being able to revive that magic that Paul was so used to creating just a few years prior. That forlorn Beatles nostalgia is conjured through those wonderful harmonies, the backing vocals, the classico rule Britannia brass arrangements, and the truly magical mix all just work together to create a distinctly beatly styled song that really runs with and has fun with everything that you would want from an album like Tug of War. I know I'm going to be saying this a lot throughout this episode, but side two is certainly the side that 
has what I would call proper tug-of-war style material, and Wanderlust is certainly part of that. Honestly folks, there really isn't much for me to pontificate on sadly, as this is a song that I've always been with the general consensus on. Right from the get-go, I liked this song, and I could see that it was a classic. I was in agreement. It was just really good. There's no clever quip and or but. What I do have is an unabashed admiration for this song. It doesn't really help the review, because simply saying, I really like this song, hardly wets the beaks of potential listeners, but fortunately, the background of this song and what it's about more than makes up for that space. Its placement on the album was always going to be a surefire way to make an impact because the preceding song, The Pound Is Sinking, is just so complex and challenging and atypical, you know, at least for Tug of War. So by the time the audience is presented with something so prototypically McCartney, firing all cylinders, doing what he does best kind of songwriting, then they are just going to be all the more powerless to emotionally resist it. Which is fair enough, really, because it's not only an emotional journey for the listener, but for Paul also. There's going to be this general theme running across the entirety of this episode, in that we're going to be somewhat struggling to leave Wings uh, and the concept of Wings behind. And with Wanderlust, once again, we're going to have to dig up the still fresh corpse of this band as Wanderlust's origins go back way further than you may think. This composition was another one of the latter-day quasi-wings tracks that McCartney worked on with Denny Lane before the breakup that was transported over to what became Tug of War. It was based on the shared real-life experience that Paul and Denny went through whilst aboard the two-party-slash-holiday-slash-recording-vessel ships that they were sailing on for the London Town Sessions. Infamously in Macalore, this was a rather ill-fated voyage with many of the people being injured on the trip as well, and there was a captain who would not charter his vessel if any illegal smokable substances were brought on board, the letter of which you can actually see on the London Town poster, and after they set sail, eventually, supposedly, more marijuana, more weed came out, and they were harassed by Coast Guards three times during their recording sessions, and official warnings were given, along with frequent periods of having to hide the stuff, or dump the stuff, or start burning incense candles to cover the smell, you know. I'm guessing. Given other recent events in Paul's life though, it's clear that when it came to re-recording this song, that maybe now there was another layer of meaning to the lyrics. Let's not forget folks that Paul was just fucking banged up abroad a short time ago for the very crime of, supposedly again, trying to smuggle some Mary Jane into Japan. So when Paul maybe first wrote the song, there were some underlying feelings of harassment because of weed, but now that is being brought up in the main text than just being the subtext. These feelings of being constantly harassed and being bullied for a plant that he and many people at that time, and even more so now, see as something totally harmless, is quite an adorable concept for a song for Paul McCartney, even if he can't overtly come out and state it right away. Like, like going back to Egypt Station with Happy With You, Paul just comes right out and says that he likes to get stoned, but that's in 2018. This is the early 1980s. He really can't directly address his love of marijuana in Wanderlust in the same way that he couldn't address his love of cushion cheese during his Beatle days. Looking at these lyrics, is Paul literally just looking for a new land with a literal wanderlust? Just a man trying to find new horizons? 
Is it just a man just looking for a general freedom? Or is it Paul looking for a future where he's going to be free of the criminal implications of being a massive pothead? Which, as a concept, also gives this song a fun, parallel, uh, silly love songs kind of vibe. Many people will tell you that Got To Get You Into My Life is Paul's ode to pot, to marijuana, grass, the old Mary Jane, to motherfucking weed. And I make the argument that Wanderlust, through a certain blurry haze, could be seen as a lamentation of a lover who is being persecuted for the one he loves. I know it sounds like a bit of a stretch, but the man loves weed, and whenever Paul writes about anything, like I said in here today, he's always on the verge of breaking into writing another love song at any moment anyway. So, again, it might not be intentional, but it's not too much of a stretch to see this as a love song in defence of smoking weed. He just wants to be left alone with his green baby. Though I can't ignore the actual in-your-face text of this, the generic interpretation of this song. For those of you not familiar with the term wanderlust, and perhaps you're coming in hot off songs like Fur You and Come On To Me, you may be forgiven for assuming that sexy songs about Paul's libido started here on Tug Of War, but the lust featured in this song's title and in the lyrics is much more of a Macca-based lust. Uh, that is the lust for freedom. These are themes that we've seen throughout his entire career, back all the way to McCartney 1, right, um, and realised to great perfection on Band on the Run. Some people might find this song to be a bit indulgent on McCartney's part, but I find it one of his most relatable, and perhaps its popularity amongst the fans means that it's relatable to a lot of other people as well. Like, you really don't have to have done your homework to understand the effective universality of this song. People can bring their own unique desire for freedom in one way or another and truly still get behind where Paul McCartney is coming from. After Wings tried and failed so many times to connect with the average person and, you know, after things like The Pound is Sinking that really just missed the mark, it's great to see Paul actually making something classically universal once again that can appeal to the masses. The song is also part of the great tapestry of McCartney's affinity for sailors, sailing and the metaphor of freedom that the sea offers. That goes, you know, back as far as Honey Pie, right through Uncle Albert, Bluebird and Morse Moose and the Grey Goose. Though this time it's just a fortunate coincidence that this song actually allows Paul to recount real-life experiences necessary for him to be able to write about sailing in such a natural way. You know, he has such a, a, a flair for writing about the sea, and finally he, he, he gets to do it for real for once. Overall, whilst Wanderlust may never be number one in anyone's top Paul McCartney songs list, it is most certainly going to be in the majority of people's top 20, and for an album track that was never promoted, that's a pretty significant achievement. This could have been a massive single. This should be more of a household name, and it isn't. And, you know, yet No More Lonely Nights is. Gosh, that's a cruel world we live in, isn't it? I'll just end this by saying I certainly have a lust for Wanderlust. Get it? The music that appears on the albums of Paul McCartney will always inadvertently end up revealing his own musical tastes in one way or another, and Tug of War is no exception. If anything, it's the progenitor of that really coming out. Though this time, it offers us something that I really never thought would have come from Paul particularly, as we are going to be offered up a deliciously filling taster of his country-style leanings. Get your Stetsons and your chewing tobacco ready, because this is Get It. You get it? 
I'm not going to lie to your audience. When I read during the initial research stint for this episode all those years ago that Paul was going to dabble in country music for this album, I had two immediate thoughts. One, admittedly, was, oh gosh, dude, do I really have to do that? I thought that was more Ringo's thing. And secondly, it was swiftly followed by, oh well, if it's a complete failure, it'll just be another one of those musical genres that he'll never revisit again, so let's just get it over with. And on both fronts, McCartney didn't disappoint, really. Because just like Lou, first Indian on the moon on Red Rose Speedway or San Ferian on Wings at the Speed of Sound, Get It is just another example of both McCartney's insatiable desire to try all sorts of world music, as well as highlighting the fact that no matter how good these songs are, you really wouldn't be too upset as a listener if he never revisited them ever again. And... With Get It, he never does. Though, as corny and as unlikely as this sounds, if this is country as done by Paul McCartney, and I'm, and I'm not someone who's familiar with country at all, then this isn't half bad. After two rather serious and heavy man tracks, Get It is a much needed break and a lark. Fuck it, why not? Let's just throw in some country. Let's just break things up a little. We've already established that this is the first prototypical modern McCartney album. So far, we've had rock, orchestral, music hall, acoustic ballads, piano ballads, waltzes, and now we have country, of all things. If you don't get it by now, then you certainly will get it by now. Paul clearly wants something for everyone this time around, but not like in that failed, mushy, red row speedway way. He's literally putting in something for everyone. At least everyone will find one song on this album that they do like, even if they might not like the rest of it. It's playing the odds in a very strange way. The big draw to record this song for McCartney was, of course, to make music with the great Carl Perkins, one of the very men that inspired a fledgling McCartney to pick up a guitar in the first place. We already had name and address from London, that was a tribute to Elvis, but there was something a little bit missing from that recording, and I think McCartney knew himself what it was. And, you know, McCartney would never be able to get Elvis on a record, but Perkins is a pretty close second place, and he is a true delight on this song. And unlike so many of the so-called cameos on this album, Perkins' presence here really does give the song a different sound and gives us something no one else could have offered. And this is really what using different singers and musicians should have done for this album, you know, actually change the sound and make it not just a bunch of McCartney songs with cameos. And this is not a McCartney song with a cameo. This is a country song possibly just featuring Paul McCartney. We've had McCartney write songs set in the country, about the country, recorded in the country, and have been about countries, but he's never tackled country head-on so directly. And it makes for a refreshingly unique experience, both on this album and in his discography in general. This unique sound is almost entirely from having Perkins on the record, because in a similar way to Stevie Wonder, Perkins was not someone that Paul was going to quote-unquote boss about in the studio. This, again, unlike many of the other Musician for Hire cameos, actually sounds like an actual collaboration also. Like, I know Paul wrote the song, but the shared lead vocal and guitar parts 
coupled with the sheer amount of infectious joy that you can hear on the record, for me, is more than enough evidence to suggest that these two really knuckled down in the studio and worked this one out. But they did so all whilst having a blast. You know, you have Perkins literally laughing himself silly at the end of this track, and McCartney decided to keep it in. And unlike the false laughter at the end of Within You, Without You for Sgt. Pepper, what we have here is this window into a truly joyous recording experience with two of music's titans. I know I normally say fun in the studio doesn't really mean fun on the record, but in this case, especially with such a delightfully lightweight track, it's perfect. Normally, whenever people talk about Paul's country music, 9 out of 10 times they're mistakenly referring to his acoustic, bucolic, folky, folksy, countryside style of songwriting, which is folksier in its makeup rather than country, which makes this out-and-out -out country song all the more special to me. Like I said, I always thought it was stereotypically more Ringo's thing, but then again, being the abstract Beatle was more John's thing, but that turned out to be Paul's as well, so who knows? Possibly more so than any other song on this album, though. Get It is a direct result of McCartney's ever-growing boredom uh, and creative restriction during Wings. Like, they were an out-and-out -out rock band that dabbled in folk music and even once dipped its toe in reggae, but he would not have been able to do this in Wings. And so much of the joy you hear on this record is possibly just from him being able to be free to do what he wants. Like, this song has just come after Wonderlust, his desire to be free, and now he's free to do wacky, random stuff like this. Whether this is the type of song he's really wanted to do for years, or whether he's just wanted to work with Perkins and he, and he whipped this up, uh, doesn't matter. The song is clearly a release for Paul, and perhaps this is more a case of performance taking more of a precedent than songwriting and musicianship, perhaps? Because this song is going to be quite the tough listen if you don't like country music. And as a British millennial, I do not like country music. Though I don't have any quibbles with Get It at all on a musical level. Uh, its casual, throwaway nature is a massive part of the song's appeal. Uh, indulgence is something that this podcast regularly deals in. And rather than the, the grandiose indulgent of, say, Morse Moose, we have a more wholesome variety of McCartney's song here. Perhaps he, he doesn't want to show off or appear too brash in front of guests. And just having Paul do something simple for the sheer fucking fun of it means you can just enjoy this light-hearted, whimsical song for what it is. This isn't McCartney trying to reinvent country. This is just Macca relaxing in country and playing it by the numbers. If that's something you can dig and get on board with, then do so. But if you don't like the sound of that, then don't worry about skipping it either. It isn't trying to do anything ambitious or grand. It doesn't have to be, because that's exactly where I like it already. It's this simple, twangy affair, nothing amazingly technical, but it's clearly the type of song that Paul wanted to make. And it's relative simplicity when compared to such a technically phantasmagorical album means it's a welcome, relative moment of calm and genuine fun on an album that could sometimes be seen as be trying too hard. Hopefully you got that. Get it? Be what you see, Link. Bleeding into existence with the final last few chuckles of the indomitable Mr. Carl Perkins, the Be What You See Link is exactly what it says on the tin. Not too sure what else you could have expected, and very much in the style of the Bitbop link from Wildlife, this is literally just a musical segue or splutter 
that is designed just to link one part of the album to another. In theory, it's more function than artistic merit, but despite its brief length, it still somehow manages to bridge the rather large gap between the country ditty of Get It with the electrically charged, electronic sounding Dress Me Up as a Robber. <laughs> That may have been one of the rare occasions on this show where we actually get to play the entire song before I get to interrupt it with my nonsensical ramblings. But that is because, rather interestingly, the main factoid about this particular track, if you can call it a track, is that it is one of the very shortest Paul McCartney releases that he has ever officially put to a record with a title. Once again, I have to make a obligatory comparison with Egypt Station, but here we have another transitionary piece, like in the way he would use Station 1 and Station 2, but unlike Egypt Station, Paul decides to put this quote-unquote link after the fourth song on side two, with only two songs left to go. Not too sure why it had to be put here, and not anywhere else. Why these two songs here? Why now? Is it to calm us down or slow the proceedings down to get us ready for the last two songs of the album? It just seems so random. Like, you literally could have moved this link anywhere through the album and you probably could have linked any two songs with a little bit of production work. You know, you've got McCartney and Martin on hand here. Though, this blending of this link to Dress Me Up as a Robber into a singular quote-unquote experience is so well done, in my opinion, that the first few times I heard it, and the first few times that I ran through Tug of War on vinyl, I simply thought it was just the entire opening movement of Dress Me Up as a Robber and not a separate entity at all. Though I'm not sure if that's a compliment or criticism, really. Like, this thing is so fleeting and seamless that it doesn't stand out in any way. But then, why do we have that little bit of ethereal sage wisdom, this vocal from Paul coming out in the mix, asking us to be what we want to see? Like, don't get me wrong, that's great advice, but, but it's so brief and so faded that you'd be lucky enough to catch it the first few times around, and it just feels like a random spiritual message for the sake of a random spiritual message. This could have just been a piece of music and worked just as fine, but there's this really weird addition that I, I don't know why it's there. I'm really not going to go into too much detail about the Be What You See link here, folks. It is what it is, and it takes us on to the next track. Dress me up as a robber. Tug of War, being the breath of fresh air slash kick up the backside that McCartney needed at this point, is suitably bursting at the seams with a pleasantly wide variety of sounds, tones and styles. But it is this next song that is certainly the strangest and hardest to define on the record. This one goes out to all of you criminal underworld tailors. This is Dress Me Up As A Robber. Doesn't make a difference what you want to do Whichever way you look at it, I'm still in love with you
yeah, this is an interesting one. It's very hard to describe. It doesn't really fit one particular genre. Uh, it is a real mixing pot of all of McCartney's idiosyncratic styles and sounds and influences. Out of all of the songs on Tug of War, it is this one, oddly enough, to me at least, that stands out as the one where he's really taking advantage of him and George Martin being in the same room, and they're just trying to create some songs that are just complex for the sake of it, and I have no problem with that, as it's pulled off with the grace that is present on the rest of this album. Upon your first listen of this song, you would think that, you know, as you were working your way through the track, that it was going to be a faithful homage to world music from Paul, Though by now you really should have come to expect that these things never go that simply for Paul when he's a little bit bored in the studio. You really don't have a lot of time to react to most of it. He throws in the guitar stuff in there, he throws in the electro-techno sounds in there, and swiftly you will learn two things. One, that this is not going to be your typical average Paul McCartney rocker, and two, just how easily Paul can cannibalise, repackage and repurpose all other random elements of music and turn them into something that is distinctly Macca. Again, this is the first quote McCartney album. Coming in after the calming effect of the Be What You See link, we literally explode into the Dress Me Up As A Robber with that very immediate and you know right away that this is going to be the last act of rock pop madness before the infamous last number that we'll surely get to shortly. Paul obviously knows that after a few heavier songs that it's best to keep things light when we bring things to a close. And it's also an opportunity for Paul to show off his musicianship as well. And I have no problem with either of those things. The riff itself, the main electric one, is oddly confusing as I can't seem to quite grasp whether it's a good riff or not. I mean, I like it. It's bold. It's energetic. And part of me feels like it's this refreshingly atypical, almost McCartney 2-esque riff. And then there's this other part of me that is very well aware that I don't know anything about guitars or music at all, really. And there's this sense that it's a bit formless and a bit all over the place. Though it does oddly match the chaotic nature of this song, how it's just all these random elements chucked together. And with the prominence of guitar in this song, you'd think that this is one of those moments that Paul would be introducing another musician for a cameo, but no, but this is Paul indulging himself in that let me roll it sort of way, where he tries to give you a riff and a guitar sound that you really don't expect from him, and that's twice on this album now that we've had a guitar sound from Paul that we've never really heard before, which indeed is a lot more revitalising than that kind of static wings guitar sound that was with the band pretty much throughout its entire run. For the verses of this song, Paul seems to be harkening back to the days where he would sing lead on Besame Mucho in Hamburg for the Beatles, because Paul inserts this Latin rhythm for this song, and by this point I'm, we're no longer surprised that Paul is adding this particular genre out of any of them. You know, if you can't handle that Mediterranean sound being thrown in on Tug of War on top of everything else, then this really isn't going to be the album for you. And Mackett achieves it as well as you might expect i.e. really fucking brilliantly, and he delivers these gorgeous acoustic flourishes that really do feel like they were written to accompany some sort of passionate romantic dance. This Latin influence goes right the way back through the extensive early demos for this song, some of which are actually on the 2015 deluxe edition of the album, and 
This is Paul trying to get his flamenco fixed on an old acoustic guitar. Not only is he trying to shred it on the electric as well, but he's also going to show off his picking skills, since here today is just a bit of a simple strummer. And to McCartney's credit, this song is one of the best displays of his guitar prowess for quite a while. Again, like the pound is sinking, he's keen to show off after years of having to work behind or with a quote-unquote lead guitarist. This is a song that is just infectious. This is the kind of sound that I am most happy that McCartney is dabbling in. That funky electro-pop guitar sound feels like such a breath of fresh air and it's blended so well with that acoustic Latin sound. It really shouldn't work. The vocal melody is one of the most immediately fun compositions on the album, even though you might not necessarily process everything that is being said the first time around. It's great to hear Paul being so joyous and playful and stereotypically silly in the studio whilst working on this album. The first voice we hear in this song is that delightfully airy and distant Macca falsetto, which just feels like he's going absolutely nuts in the studio. Then over the course of the verses, his voice begins to build and build to match the equally rousing guitar parts. Stuart and Linda's backing vocals are also really quite complex this time around, and the interweaving that's done between the three of them is just proof that Paul does not need to worry about the quality of his harmonies as a solo artist. He can still do this amazingly well. Lyrically, I'm a little bit ambivalent about this song. It's just a little bit repetitious. Uh, the song doesn't really go anywhere. It doesn't feel like it's been finished off properly. The idea is, is that Paul is basically saying in every verse, you can change me in some sort of way, but I'll still love you. And that's a very McCartney-esque theme, of course. Uh, you can dress him up as a robber, but he won't be in disguise. He'll still love you. Uh, you could dress him up as a sailor, but he'll never run to sea. You can dress him up as a soldier, but he doesn't want to go to war. And it all seems to hang around that line on the second to last verse when he says, what's the point in changing when I'm happy as I am? And I guess that's somehow a reflection on the album as a whole and where Paul is at this stage in his life. Which is weird because he's going through so many massive changes, though you could argue as he's making everything a lot, a lot simpler and he's just going to do things the way he wants to. Though I don't want to give too much lyrical analysis to this song because it, it, it does feel quite throwaway in its lyricism. It's mostly Paul having more fun in the studio and the instrumentation than as a songwriter. Though I will say the lyrics that Paul sings during the Latino segments of the song do feel a little more at home amid the loving melodrama. By the way, I know a lot of this all sounds like a bunch of random stuff all forced together into a Paul McCartney soup, and it really is. But honestly, I really dig this side of Paul. It's him at his most experimental and oddball, while still staying somewhat within the safe confines of modern pop rock albums that are produced by George Martin. It's Mad Professor Paul that I champion, but it's somewhat tempered, and that's probably the best outcome for everyone in the long term. Like, you could really imagine this song going wrong without a figure like Martin to come in and translate and blend all of these strange ideas together. Yeah, Dress Me Up As A Robber is absolutely all over the place. It's unfocused, and it's probably a little bit too overproduced and a little bit too overambitious for what it is. I have no idea what's going on during any part of it, and I fucking love it. It may not be that high up in anyone's list, and it's probably not going to be one of the songs that comes to mind when you think about Tug of War immediately, but it's definitely one of the songs that helps bind the album together in that kind of carefree, let's just do anything for the hell of it type of style. 
And it is certainly a lot better than the last song we are going to be covering on this episode. I can't delay it any longer, can I? Ebony and Ivory. And finally, we move on to the song that was always going to be the song of the episode, a.k.a. the principal track that people would be most interested in hearing my specific opinion on, uh, for, for good reason. Why is that, though? Well, that's probably because Ebony and Ivory is one of the most historically divisive tracks on not only Tug of War, but of all of McCartney's songbook. Whilst it may not be a clean-cut 50-50 split down the middle of the fan base, the discourse surrounding this closing track is a thoroughly black-and-white issue indeed. Of course, it's Ebony and Ivory. What we need to survive together alive. This was one of those songs on the horizon that I knew I would eventually have to cover on this show. And I was always worried about what I would say when I got to this point because my love slash hate slash love slash hatred for this song is a subjective and fickle thing indeed meaning my opinion can vary wildly from a kitsch, ironic kind of affection to a sort of hate that one only really reserves for dictators who have committed war atrocities and the like. But here we are, day of recording, and I have to go with what I feel here, people. I cannot lie to you out there. I'm going to play it safe. This song really has not aged well at all, has it? Now, let me preface this whole review with a couple of things. One, this song is objectively not one of Paul McCartney's best songwriting efforts to date at all. That is a fact. Two, the message for this song is as timeless as it was then, as it is now. You don't need me to sit here and tell you that the message of racial harmony is obviously a positive one. That's not what I'm critiquing here today. That would be a very different type of podcast indeed. And three... That there are days where I do love this song for everything that it is and everything that it kind of stands for in that in that painfully, adorably cringy way that it is. Those days do catch me off guard, but they are sadly few and far between. The subject of race has unfortunately always been a contentious issue across societies the planet over, with our species seemingly having an infinite potential for fucking with each other based purely on the amount of melanin in one's complexion. The subject itself is so deeply imbued with volatile, emotive reactivity of such cultural scope and enormity that, of course, our Macca would eventually take it upon himself to tackle as an issue head-on with his own brand of peace and love, peace and love. Now, in cynical old 2019, the quaint little notion of Paul McCartney, aka one of the most famous white men in history, was going to come down from his high horse and tell the world about how racism works, might seem a, a little bit inappropriate or problematic in some circles now, but that's completely bollocks. Paul is obviously 
being very genuine with this one. He's writing from the heart. He's trying to write something that might actually make some sort of positive change within the world. And with that in mind, the song is exactly what you'd expect from a twee Paul McCartney saccharine song about race and race relations. Yeah, it, it was never going to be nuanced or subtle or or ever going to be more than just window dressing on an issue. What is the immediate problem though, and this isn't something that you see get brought up a whole lot in the discussion of this song, is the fact that Maka has essentially already done this song before, and more to the point, done it far better. The song that I am on about, of course, is Blackbird from the White Album. And I wouldn't suggest for a minute that certain subjects should only be approached by a single artist once, but when a subject is so definitively pinpoint iconic as Blackbird, then there is going to be a certain sense of redundancy in the effect of any subsequent song and in what that song can deliver. Maybe that's why Ebony and Ivory comparatively is so in your face and so on the nose and so broad because Paul was actively in the way that he does, always trying to do something a little bit different, and maybe he wanted to do something different from Blackbird. And as always, Paul, good on you for trying to do something different, but when it came to approaching this song, I'm not saying the tone had to be serious and it had to be dour and morose, but the resultant tone that we got, it just doesn't feel appropriate now, does it? Did it then? And I'm quite confident when I say that I know that I'm not the only person who would have just preferred another acoustic finger picker, even if it was just a carbon copy of Blackbird, because what we got was just embarrassing. This is the nadir of Paul McCartney's career at this point, and it is hilarious to me how this return to form album, this album that everyone's been going on and on and on about, has such a clunker, a stinker on it. Compare to what Stevie Wonder has said about race in his solo career. And I know that that's not a fair comparison. And I know that Paul kind of retroactively added this story about race to Blackbird to some degree. But it doesn't take away from just how rubbish this song is, does it? Oh yes, it, it is clever that McCartney uses the metaphor of you know the keys on the keyboard being side by side and likening that to racial harmony in society. But even that was just stolen from the great writer and wordsmith Spike Milligan, who Lennon was a big, massive fan of, uh, who first commented on how it takes black and white keys to create a harmony. So even the wittiest part of this song is a rehash. What's also amusing to me is that, you know, Ebony and Ivory has become the living meme within the Paul McCartney fan base and how it seems to be this defining measuring stick, the key canary in the mine shaft that tells people something about how you approach McCartney and his material. No other song is more quickly brought up in discussion of his worst material, but there are also a lot of people who genuinely defend it. I can honestly see both sides of this argument, I really can, but, especially today, I am struggling to see how anyone can honestly with a sincere, critical mind, appreciate this song any way other than fully ironically. You just can't. And you can't call it anything other than the worst song on the album. 
and what a way to end the album. I'm sure Paul thought that this was going to end things on a high note and the song, as uplifting as it is, does nothing but just leave me absolutely drained and dejected and totally let down. Furthermore, the song barely even fits in with the themes of Tug of War and it almost feels like McCartney bottled out at the last minute from ending his album on a more suitably dramatic, possibly darker tone. The original demo for this song features McCartney doing a solo performance, so I wonder whether it was composed before the whole concept of the Tug of War slash Pipes of Peace split began, because when you think about it, Ebony and Ivory, thematically, is a song that is perfect for Pipes of Peace, and whilst this gooey track about love for all may be more... Though whilst this gooey track about love may be more fitting for the next album on this show, the famous collaborations would seem to be legally tied to a specific album, whether they are suitable or not, and I, I have no doubt that record companies would be in no rush to blur the Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder partnerings. That would just confuse the brand, wouldn't it? Um... Though, now that I think about it, Say 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 would probably fit better on Tug of War, but that is a discussion for, for the next episode as well. The song is cheesy as fuck. There are no two ways about it. This is two slices of cheddar on your toast kind of cheese, and it knows it. Paul goes full-on schmaltz this time around for his second duet with Stevie Wonder. For those of you who have heard Isn't She Lovely by Stevie Wonder, you will know that he too is partial to a bit of saccharine shite, and together they create what can only be described as the most hilariously 80s thing I have ever heard. All the synths have this horribly squelchy wetness to them that is just so off-putting that it instantly prevents you from putting up with this song in any other context other than you'll know that you can gleefully torture someone with it. This isn't like the McCartney 2 synth where it's like abrasive in its weirdness. This is just awkward and unintentionally discordant. The sound is just unbearable to listen to. Oh, and then there's the solo. Don't even get me started on the solo. Fuck me. That is the nadir of the guitar work on this album. Like, there is no depth that this song won't go into. We get this techno tinny solo that's so bland, so M.O.R that to rationalise it, it has to be some kind of postmodern ironic joke on the part of McCartney, Martin and Wonder to see what they could get away with. It's that unengaging. And speaking of Martin, where the hell was he? I feel like he was so present across this whole album and then we bump into this song that clearly feels like it was just produced by McCartney and Wonder in the room on the day. The lack of quality control is maddening. Like, I know we, we had a random song from a different session plonked on the end of Wildlife, but that was a better song that improved the album, not the other way around. Like any classic McCartney song, the lyrics do have their heart in the right place, but they do feel woefully unfinished. I mean, I'm not asking McCartney to solve the problem of racism, but even for a McCartney throwaway pop song, this is really skating the surface of a subject. He doesn't offer anything new, any new perspectives. He doesn't even take advantage of the fact that it's now going to be a duet with Stevie Wonder, and maybe he could alter the lyrics to reflect that. No. It's all just exactly what you would expect from McCartney to do with this topic in this period. And that is just such a letdown. 
I don't know, just something about the combination of Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney, the guys who brought you Blackbird, Maybe I'm Amazed, Sir Duke and Superstition. You just would assume they'd deliver something a little more experimental and inspired and something where they played a bit better and sung a bit better and just wrote a better song. Like, Stevie signed off on this. I have no idea why. Um, they just don't seem to bring out the best of each other in this recording at all, do they? Except that they kind of did for What's That You're Doing. So why is it for this recording they seem to have lost all flair, energy and chemistry? Who knows? I hate to hate on this particular song, people, but fuck me, is it bad. Like, it does bring the entire tug-of-war experience to a crashing halt. I wish it was just released as a separate standalone single or something and had been replaced with the cold cut, like Rain Clouds or a track from Pipes of Peace. For all of my gripes with Take It Away, I can kind of understand why people at the time would have liked it as a piece of music, but this one has me completely baffled here, people. Looking back here, folks, you people who lived in the 80s have a lot of explaining to do. Yeah, your hearts were all in the right place, but that didn't mean you actually had to go out and buy it, did you? Ebony and Ivory. Perhaps Paul was a little fast off the mark in calling it Perfect Harmony. It is what it is, and what it is, is a complete misfire. Of course it was great to see Paul and Stevie play this at the White House a couple of years ago, but outside of that, this song really has nothing to offer for me at all. Cannon fodder. We started this feature back in the early days of the show, but unlike the album art review segment, this is a part of the show that I have never actually forgotten, and this is where I like to collate the best songs that we have worked with here today, no pun intended, and... Over time, when we come to the end of the album review shows on this podcast, we will, we will have hopefully created a list of the true Paul McCartney canon. Canon being the official list of what's worth listening to. Canon, canon fodder, I'm sure you see what I did there. I like to limit it to three songs just to create a, a little bit of competition and tension out there. And also there's nothing worse than killing your musical darlings for everyone else out there to hear which always makes great content for you out there. Speaking of which, please, I would love to hear your own top three songs from Tug of War, your own cannon fodder for this album and any album we have covered at all. What were your top three Tug of War cannon fodder songs? Please send that to either paulmccartneypod at gmail.com or the Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. As per usual for this segment... It spawned two rather obvious answers for me, which makes things rather easy. But Tug of War has both prestige Macca material as well as obscure album tracks that both appeal to me. The fact that this is the first proper Paul McCartney album means that I have a lot of tracks to choose from. And honestly, I don't think that there is a track that I could pick for this segment that would annoy too many people. First up, I'm going to go with Ballroom Dancing because I will always champion McCartney when he is at his most self-indulgently dorky, which is something that I can totally relate to, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's his granny music formula at its height, and it also features one of the best vocals on the album, which no one ever talks about. How can you not love Ballroom Dancing? Next up, I'm going to go with What's That You're Doing? 
because someone out there has to inform the public that there is a song by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder that doesn't make you want to throw up every time you hear it. And when I saw Stevie Wonder a few years ago, I knew then that I was going to always end up picking one of his compositions for this album review. I do have a soft spot for the man, I have to admit. Lastly, I'm going to go with Here Today, because how could I not? I could have gone with Wanderlust and made kind of the exact same choice, but out of the most prestigious songs that we will ever come across on this podcast, this is the one that possibly ranks the highest. It is as important and poignant now as it was when it came out, and as I now know, McCartney can still suck it up live and deliver this song with record quality clarity. I was nearly crying at this one. And those are my top three songs from Tug of War. The Cannon Fodder is Ballroom Dancing, What's That You're Doing, and Here Today. And that was Paul McCartney's Tug of War. Yep, we did it, folks. It's been a long time coming, this one. You know, it, it really has. Like, I think out of all the episodes I've done research for, for this project, this podcast, this has been the longest in production. As I mentioned in part one, I can remember writing notes for this episode when I went to Amsterdam a couple of years ago. I've done it, and now we are truly on the way to Macca's solo career path, uh, which, depending on your point of view, is either a really good thing or a bad thing for the show. But this has been a fucking great episode to record. There's been a wealth of material for us to cover, both in the background research and in the songs themselves. It's been some fascinating content for me to talk about, and I can only hope that it's been the same for you. Overall, listening to Tug of War, I can say that, you know, after going through it the second time around, my opinion really hasn't changed that much, bar a couple of songs that I didn't like at all that much. So overall, it, it, it has improved ever so slightly, like, there was no doubt in my mind at all that this was going to be an album that got a positive review from me. You don't have to be a genius to know that there's going to be some gold standard material going into this album. And I can say at the end here that I am well versed in why people consider this to be one of McCartney's all-time greatest releases. It's not a wrong statement to make. Though where I differ is where the particular gold is found in this album. People were always hailing Take It Away and the title track for ages. And whilst I agree that Here Today is as timeless as anything, no one ever seems to talk about tracks like Dress Me Up As A Robber or The Pound Is Sinking. And that's quite sad to me because they are some of my favourite Paul songs of all time. They're not go-to ones, they're not standards, they're not classics, but they are solid Macca compositions. You cannot deny that Paul's songwriting is incredibly strong here, both in his lyricism as well as the sheer number of memorable melodies. It's also extremely consistent, which is admittedly somewhat rare for a solo Macca record. And even the songs that I'm not a particular fan of don't take away from the fact that once you hit song three, right up until the last song, it's just hit, 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 hit. Albums like Ram and Band on the Run do admittedly have a core sound or an idea that works towards their cohesion, but Tug of War, aka the first Paul McCartney album, really doesn't need that. There's such a fantastic variety of soundscapes and genres, and as a listener you're always kept stimulated with something new and exciting every moment of the way, even if it might not match up at all with anything else on the album. I do find it odd that two of the songs that I chose for my canon fodder for this album, Here Today and Ballroom Dancing, 
which are both songs that appear on an album that is notable and memorable for all of its guest stars, are also both songs where it's just McCartney by himself. And that's one of the main issues I have with the album uh, that really stunts my excessive praise that I may heap upon it as a whole. Like, maybe it's because I have a lesser knowledge of music than other music fans. Maybe it's because many of these guest stars have little relevance today. But I can't help but feel that the gimmick kind of falls flat on its face. If Paul hadn't spent so much time talking about how many guest stars and different musicians were on this album, then I really wouldn't have noticed. <laughs> it still sounds like a Paul McCartney album, more or less. There's nothing about it that screams that there are many other voices on this Jimmy McCulloch made more of an impression on Venus and Mars and Wings on the Speed of Sound than anyone else did on this album, say, Stevie Wonder. And if there wasn't so much hype around it, maybe it wouldn't be such an issue for me. For all this media spin about this all-star lineup, it's just extra dressing for me. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not including George Martin in that list. I'm merely on about the instrumentalist and session musician players because one of the most important elements behind a good solo McCartney album is a good producer, and Paul has kicked off his solo career with a bang by bringing in Martin. In hindsight, it was also very wise of Paul to pick now of all times to work with Martin again because it would have been too much to bear, really, to have squandered a Paul McCartney-George Martin collaboration on something like Wings at the Speed of Sound. In hindsight, again, Paul was also wise to create such a glut of songs with Martin and have him produce enough solid material, to different degrees, shall we say, for the next album, Pipes of Peace. Talk about bang for your buck. Speaking of Pipes of Peace, aka the elephant in the room that we're going to get to next time, I'm still not so sure why Tug of War is compared so overwhelmingly favourably to Pipes of Peace. I mean, I can understand why people aren't as into the mawkish charm and ethos of Pipes of Peace and the kind of groove that it's going for, especially coming off things like McCartney 2, Wings and Tug of War, but the idea that Tug is so definitively better as an album is still up for grabs to me. The fact that Tug of War has here today an Ebony and Ivory, as well as being the first post-Wings solo effort, may add a certain prestige to it that it doesn't have outside of the songwriting. And I'm going to go to this in further detail on the Pipes of Peace episode, but at the very least, the heights of Pipes of Peace rival, if not exceed, the heights of Tug of War, even if Pipes of Peace might have certain troughs that are worse than the worst tracks on Tug of War, Ebony and Ivory excluded. If through some sort of twist of fate I had any say on what was going to go on this album or not, of course I would forever maintain that Ebony and Ivory should have just been a classic Macca non-album single, and... Without the foreknowledge that Pubs of Peace was 100% going to be a project, I probably would have ended up plundering tracks like Keep Undercover and Hey Hey, and I'd stick them on the album in place of the title track, and maybe stuck Take It Away on Pipes of Peace instead. Anyway, it's time to get definitive here. There is no way I want you leaving this album review episode thinking that I do not like this album. This is an extremely strong release on Paul McCartney's part especially after the death of John Lennon. You know, you might think that he wouldn't have been able to pull it out of the bag and he would have played it safe or he wouldn't have had the gusto to do it, but by God, he does it. He does it with style. There's so much substance here and every track has at least one little thing that is memorable. I'm just going to be a little bit sceptical that it's the go-to post-Wings release. If I was going to give it an arbitrary numerical review for the purposes of comparison later on down the road, then I guess I would give Tug of War four stars 86% and a solid B grade. Ooh! Tug of War. Ooh, there we are. Outside of my original vinyl purchases, 
being McCartney, Ram and Band on the Run. I think this album has been the one that I've probably been listening to the longest as well. Uh, it's an album I'm very familiar with. It was the album I was most dreading to do. The album that I'm most relieved to have done as well. Because the whole thing, just no matter which way you approach it, with the background or the songs or what the songs mean or the production or the style, it's just so massive. It's been a huge project and it's produced two huge episodes. But we've done it. Like Paul, we've taken the plunge and I hope it was worth the wait. Thank you, folks, for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. My name has been Sam Wiles. I am your host. Please check us out on Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Send us your Paul McCartney stories and your top three tug-of-war cannon fodder tracks to paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Check out the blog, which is www.wordpress.com slash mccartneypod. Check out our Patreon. Become a patron. Help support the show. Help keep the lights running on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash mccartneypod. All these links are going to be down there below, including the YouTube and the Facebook. Simply type in Paul or nothing or Paul McCartney podcast. I'm not going to keep you any... Once again, folks, thank you all for listening to Paul or Nothing. This has been a bit of a rocky point in my life. I'm going to get to uh, a couple more explanations and a bit of behind the scenes, peeling back of the curtains on the next episode. This one has taken a long time to come out and then some things have happened and it took another long time to actually get it produced. Paul or Nothing is still on track. Do not worry. We've got lots of content just around the corner. We've got another conspiracy bonus episode where we talk about the John Lennon conspiracy, Klaatu and everyday chemistry. We've got more hot hits and cold cuts, more Paul McCartney music videos, Wings Over the Netherlands, the Yellow Submarine film review and of course Pipes of Peace. Denny Lane is most surely playing us out by now. See you all next time. Peace and love, peace and love. Take it away Denny.